He's been working for this day for nine long, hard years. Uh, you, you be saying, we're going to get there, we're going to get there. And uh, finally you get there like today, and you find out, wow. We don't belong here. We belong someplace else. We belong back in the ghetto. Director Rinaldo Marcus Green could relate when he was given the script for King Richard, a film that is now up for six Oscars, including Best Picture. Like Venus and Serena Williams, Green had a father who was his coach, not in tennis, but in baseball. And Green's dad had big hopes his son would make it to the bigs. In other words, Green knew what it was like to be raised by a Black father with a big personality and a complicated relationship with his children and their success. In King Richard, Will Smith plays Richard Williams, the difficult, indomitable dad who, with his 87-page plan, was determined to coach his young daughters to tennis stardom. His girls initially lacked the advantages of other youthful competitors, spending their earliest years on the tennis courts near their home in Compton, California, before making it into the world of exclusive clubs and elite coaching. As a little boy, my mom used to say, son, the most strongest, the most powerful, the most dangerous creature on this whole earth. It's a woman who know how to think. Ain't nothing she can't do. Y'all know how to think? Yes, Daddy. Now these people we about to go see, you gonna show them how dangerous you are? Yes, Daddy. Let me see your dangerous face. Will that, that's your dangerous face? <laughs> Director Rinaldo Marcus Green played a dangerous game of baseball, though he didn't make it to the major leagues. It took some time, but eventually he followed his brother into NYU film school. In 2018, his debut feature, Monsters and Men, won an award at Sundance and was released to critical acclaim. Then came the less successful father-son drama, Joe Bell, with Mark Wahlberg. That film wasn't even finished in 2019 when he was hired to direct King Richard. Preparing for this interview, I'm like, oh, uh, <laughs> where did this guy come from? Kind of, <laughs> but you, you, you do come from a place you, uh, well, you, but you were already uh, being pulled into King Richard before it was released, even that this was, uh, you were meeting with Will Smith. Uh, do I, I have that right? Yes. So at the very, the last week of shooting Joe Bell, I finally scored an interview with Warner Brothers. Mm. And from there, I finished production the, the following week. I flew out to Los Angeles. I met the producer, Tim White. Uh, and then after meeting Tim, I finally scored my meeting with Will. And all of that happened probably in a two-week period. Uh, you know, an exciting two-week period. Know, it was nuts. Yeah. I wasn't, I had, we, haven't, we hadn't even started cutting Joe Bell at the time. I read that when you first were approached, you didn't believe Will Smith was really attached, which is a completely no no shade at Will Smith. I mean, there's certain people who are attached to everything, as you know, and and then almost nothing ever happens. But so you had that healthy skepticism, let's say. Well, yes. And, and look, I had gone through <laughs> I had gone through the experience of Joe Bell when we had fully financed movie and there was mm -hmm. no money when I came on. And so you know, look, I, I believe it when I see it. And I certainly believed it when I walked in the room and saw Will Smith. And so <laughs> it was a big moment for me because 
you know, it's Will Smith. He's a producer on the project. I walk in the room and, and James Lasseter is there, his longtime producing partner, mm-hmm. Kayla Pinkett Smith. So it's not just one person. I mean, I'm like, am I supposed to pitch to the room? What am I supposed to do here? Who am I, I making said, eye know, contact I'm with? It's like, uh. yeah, who am I making eye contact with? You know, one of the very first, I'll, I'll go back just quickly. I One of the very first jobs or films that I pitched on come you know right after sundance they say go to la and take meetings and there was this great project which i won't name but (laughs) but i walk in the room and there's nine people i literally i'd never been i don't think i ever ate dinner with nine people before (laughs) and so there's nine people in this meeting i don't know what to look left right there's producers there's you know the studio and i just i didn't know what to do i didn't know who to you know and then i'm trying to talk to the room and then i felt like i wasn't connecting with anybody and it's a real art there's a real art to pitching and i thought after that okay I, I have to come really prepared and I have to really know who I need to engage with and 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 the next time I do this I'm gonna look the actor right in the eye and I'm gonna tell him everything that I couldn't say in the first meeting and that's exactly what I did with Will I learned from that first experience that yes. I didn't get did you talk about your dad and the baseball of course of course I mean that, <laughs> of course that, you, did. That, you know yeah. I, I, short of me like whipping out my phone and showing him photos which I I certainly considered <laughs> I, I I really was like you know look my dad wore those short shorts <laughs> I understood what it was like to grow up with a black father who could have been misunderstood because he was outspoken and that can that can scare people that makes people feel uneasy at times. I also have an unbreakable bond with my brother Rashad. And so I always felt like a young Serena, you know, like that, that was always how I felt, you know, and, you know, just want to be cool. I want my brother to think I'm cool. You know, that's what all of this is for in a lot of ways. You know, it's like, you just want to be seen by your, by your older sibling and, and them to pay attention to you. And, and so I think I could talk to him and he can relate to that. And we just hit it off. We hit it off as as people. And um, I don't know. Part of me, I've been saying it over and over, but I think it felt like watching Tom Brady leave the New England Patriots and going to, you know, Tampa Bay to win a championship. Like, that's exactly what it felt like watching Will in this particular role at this particular time. You know, he spent, what, 20, 30 years, you know, making it at the top of his craft, but he still has a lot more to give. And I can sense that. I can sense that in him, that this was this was a really, really important role for him and that he was going to give everything to it and that I was the guy to help him get there. And Ingenue Ellis is in the game for Best Supporting Actress. She plays Oracine Price, mother to Venus, Serena, and their three sisters. As is reflected in the film, Oracine's husband, Richard, was a flawed, stubborn man with a string of failed ventures and children who he'd left behind. You sound like you got something you need to get off your chest. Don't let God stop you. Say what you need to say. Oh, I said it. Your son's showing up in that red Nissan truck knocking on my door. And all you had to say was, oh, look, it's my son. He found me. And then all your other kids showing up after that. Okay. See, another woman would have left. But I stayed because I don't quit. You, you're the one who leaves. So you're dealing with a family and you had done on the um, previous movie, Joe Bell, the deal with the, the Jaden Bell, the young man who is no longer with us. You dealt with his mother. I don't know if that experience was in any way helped prepare for this or dealing with the family. I would imagine that's in, in some ways tricky to navigate. 
It, it can be, but it, it wasn't. And I think the biggest difference between Joe Bell and King Richard was prep. We had more time. We had more time to shoot the film. We had more time to dissect the script. We had more time to uh, think about and be deliberate with this. You know, we were very fortunate to have Isha Price, who's a producer on the film, and she was on set every day. This is one of the sisters that... Yes, sorry. <laughs> yes, so Isha Price is one of the sisters in the film. She, she, you know, so she understood what the bedroom looked like. She understood what the courts looked like. She knew what the sisters were wearing and what they would say and how they would say it. She knew how Serena would hold the racket versus Venus. And that's just a level of nuance that you just, you can't make up. You just feel those things when you're watching the movie. Mm. And so that was incredible. And then, you know, she was able to get us meetings with Oracine, Venus, Serena, early on, you know, in prep. It was instrumental to sit with Venus and hear her tell me, you know, I know you guys have to take certain liberties to make a movie. The, one of the things that are most important to me is that, you know, for dramatic license that you're not going to like pit Serena against me. You know, you, you know, she didn't say that verbatim, but that was right. the sentiment that, you know, Serena is the kind of sister that would skip a match to see me practice. Right. Don't and get drama all, out of that. That's yeah, not a thing. And, mm-hmm. and that's not a thing. And you, first of all, you don't get to see that in movies, right? It's always the drama and sisters and sibling rivalry. And in this movie, it's just support. And that it took more than just being great athletes. You know, it took being great human beings by having this support system, you know, devised by Richard's plan, but executed by this amazing mom who, you know, you don't really know. You don't know by looking on the internet how instrumental Oracy and Price was to the development of Venus and Serena. And, and these were the stories that we heard firsthand. Now, Oracine, I read, the mom said to you, look, you can do anything, but just don't make me a chump. Is that, a, <laughs> is, that a, is that an allusion to the stuff that wasn't in the movie about, you know, what had gone on with her husband and other, his prior family, or what was that an allusion to? Yeah, so she, that was one of the stories that she told us, you know, she, you know, the, with the sun showing up and the red Nissan truck. That scene almost verbatim is is from a conversation that Zach, myself, Tim, Tim White had with with Orsi Price. And they read the script. And as we would go through the scenes and talk about certain scenes, she would say, yes, this happened, but I wouldn't say it like that. Or I wouldn't do it like that. But yes, that was the underlining thing that she just wanted to make sure that she was being recognized for the work that she actually did. If you're going to go there and you're going to make a movie, you should know it wasn't all Richard. And look, Richard deserves a lot of credit. She wasn't trying to take credit away from Richard, but she certainly wasn't trying to take credit away from herself. But did you feel you had to take away some of the negatives about Richard to keep the family in the picture or to make the story, you know, the story that people would want to see? Yeah, you know, I don't think about it as negative or positive. And I I mean that. I I think we're all human and we all have flaws. And I think every time, you know, you're able to show that, I think it only makes us love you more because it makes you human, right? Nobody's perfect. And I'm not saying that, you know, Richard's journey is, you know, it's definitely a unique one. And it's a fine line, right? It's a fine line between loving your protagonists and hating them for the things that they're doing. 
And Richard can be frustrating. Richard can be, you know, uh, you know, you're 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 not sure if you're all the way in or all the way invested because mm-hmm. he every time you think he's got you, he does something that's like, man, why is he why is he doing, <laughs> why is he doing that? that? And I yeah. think that makes him really interesting. That makes us that makes us lean in. That makes us. But 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 then it comes full circle, and he says, I haven't been a perfect father. I've made mistakes. But I was doing it to protect you. It's like hard not to become emotional, even just talking about it, because I know my father, so many parents, I think, feel that way, regardless of any, you know, misgivings in in his past. Um, And again, it's not those those things should be forgiven. You know, they're they're just, it's part of who he is. Rinaldo Marcus Green is the director of King Richard, which is nominated for Best Picture, his third movie at this year's Academy Awards. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It's truly an honor and privilege to be here with you. I heard people talk about anger on, on the Saturday program, and I was just thinking about that incident. And um, what I've been doing since that day is listening to um, specific music like uh, Fela Kuti, Bob Marley. I might listen to um, old old programs of Dr. Wilson, uh, Neely Fuller, uh, The Cows, um, and also I've been listening to motivational speakers. I think one is called uh, one of the guys is Eric Thomas, a black guy, and another guy, a black guy, is uh, Les Brown, and that's been helping me out a lot. Um, like they they still make like jungle noises and do weird things. But everything that I've been doing, um, and then along with um, working out, thanks to Emmy, I started working out again. This month on GBH's Morning Edition, we've been highlighting small black businesses in Boston. Today, we head to Four Corners in Dorchester, where in the middle of a busy intersection sits an oasis of spiritual and physical well-being. Yes, yes. So welcome to Four Corners Yoga and Wellness. I um... There, we meet Christine Rose, owner and massage therapist for the Wellness Center. She's wearing a Four Corners Yoga t-shirt, the same color as her surgical mask. And although you can't see her smile, you can definitely hear it. Rose co-founded the Wellness Center with Karuna O'Donnell to make their classes and service accessible to those who may not be readily available to afford them or who are unfamiliar with the yoga practice. Rose explained why the Four Corners neighborhood was the ideal community to do that. This neighborhood itself has been looking for health and wellness, some kind of business in that way, and they don't get really highlighted as often for this. So now we're kind of known as the wellness corridor because you have Carbon Square Health Center, you have HealthWorks, the Daily Table, you have us, and then the Guild is right down the street, and they also do some um, body work and meditation and things like that too. So it's just very important because people in this neighborhood um, They come in and they say, thank you for coming here. Thank you for taking a chance. Thank you for giving us this opportunity. Um, We're the only massage place, like, within, I think, I'd say a mile, because JP has things. So it's, but coming this way in Dorchester, you won't find any um, massage brick and mortar that are out there like this. We are very much about community. We're an inclusive, accessible 
community-oriented studio, and it's not about, you know, the money. I mean, we are a for-profit business, but it's really about making sure we offer affordable services to, so that everybody can come in and, and feel like they are able to uh, participate. What is it about Four Corners that you think makes it so vital to have a service like this in this particular area? Well, the people here in this neighborhood uh, between Codman Square and, and Four Corners, they are fighters. <laughs> they come together and I like to be able to give back and make a difference and that's exactly what I saw that this community needed and I saw, I saw that people here in this community are nervous about exploring new things but with my energy and the way I talk you would feel like, okay, this is a comfortable, safe place for me. I could come here. I could do this. If a person hasn't done yoga, what I love to encourage them to do is listen to the teacher and to breathe. Have no judgment on yourself and just allow yourself to do what you can do. Because as you're doing the yoga poses and movements and doing the flow, there's something about the collective energy in the room, something about just hearing the teacher speak, that just makes you just feel empowered. It's a common thought that yoga is a very white practice, mm -hmm. or, or, or at least not necessarily that a lot of black and brown people may be doing yoga per se. Yeah. But what's your take on that? And also, how are you trying to change that narrative? Well, I believe that people look at our studio as a place that they can feel comfortable at because we are black owned and the teachers, the staff that I hire, uh, we have, it's, it's just basically a mixed group of men and women. Um, and that doesn't even mean to say that it's just about the skin color. It's about the body shape. If you noticed on the back of my t-shirt, it's yoga for everybody. So we're not saying that you have to look a certain way to come in here. <laughs> you can come in wearing your sweatpants and a t-shirt. You mentioned wanting to make yoga and wellness accessible to this community and that sometimes people might be a little bit hesitant right, to come in and try, but how are you opening them up to that? And I encourage people, when I have the opportunity to meet them, I say, you need to just create your Zen within your own head, you know, just to let go, take a breath, and just allow yourself to do what you can do. But a lot of people then also in the same breath, because they can't let go, Sometimes they are doing yoga and they get like stuck in a position or, or they feel like they can't do something and then they feel like I'm not coming back again. And I try to encourage people that really it's not about trying to do just like your neighbor because you don't know how long they've been doing yoga. And you know what? Next week they might not be able to do that same thing. So you have to remember to let yourself just go. <laughs> That was Christine Rose, owner and massage therapist at Four Corners Yoga and Wellness, talking about getting people from that neighborhood into yoga. And Jeremy, of course, the pandemic has lessened those class numbers a bit to the point that Christine says sometimes only two people will show up in person, which has been kind of hard to get that community feeling back. Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about Four Corners. Why, talking to Christine, why did she find it important to bring a health and wellness business to this area? So there are a few reasons. One being that, you know, Four Corners is a busy neighborhood, as we heard at the beginning there. Uh, a lot goes on there, but also it's sort of this small hub for wellness, as Christine described. Um, and 
this is a neighborhood of fighters, as she described the people who are there who have to deal with all the kinds of things from social and racial inequities uh, to development issues and things that they really want to stand up for. And so some of that can be stressful sometimes. So it's good to have yoga as a reprieve. Uh, but Christine also said a service like this wasn't there and therefore people weren't being introduced to yoga, even though it was something that could be beneficial for them. And one of the barriers to them being able to get into yoga was not only not having a brick and mortar studio, but also maybe being a little shocked by the price because, you know, yoga mm -hmm. classes can be kind of expensive. <laughs> but here at Four Corners, Christine really has an emphasis on making sure people can participate even if they can't pay a, the full price or can't pay up front. So today is the last day of Black History Month, and we've been highlighting uh, small black businesses here in Boston on Morning Edition. You've had a couple conversations um, uh, looking at different businesses. Tell me a bit about what we've highlighted so far and why it's important. So we earlier this month, we went to Tafari Raps, which is having a pop-up market at Somerville's Bow Market. Um, and they, you know, there we met Delmisha Haynes, who talked about wanting to bring African prints and the vibrancy of those prints and the energy that comes with them to Boston's Black community and to Boston's community as a whole. And of course, now here at Four Corners, we're talking about a business that wants to make yoga inclusive, not just for Black people, but for everyone. And so it's been really interesting to see how these businesses have cemented themselves in an identity and in a community, but also opened that up to other cultures as well. All right. If people want to read that story, if they missed it and listen to the story um, about Tafari Raps in Somerville, check it out online at gbhnews.org. He was so fat. You saw how fat he was. I don't care what I brought in this house. He just eat it up. I don't care what it was I brought in here. I bring some Popeye's chicken. That boy eat the whole thing. Before I even get a chance to get me a bite of the chicken, eat his eat off. He would eat his little ass off. You ain't ever seen nobody eat like He would eat candy. Gumballs. He made me take him over over up there to the super Kmart. And he put them quarters in that gumball. Yeah. He had to wait till he get the red gumball. He had to get he always had to get the red gum. You sound like a character, I guess. Get that red gum ball, and you just eat all that red gum. dilemma oftentimes for someone struggling from an eating disorder who is um, a person of color is because there's a lot of healthcare worker bias in terms of understanding that people of color can struggle with eating disorders. Um, there's weight stigma that oftentimes in, uh, intersects, meaning that 
because eating disorders are oftentimes associated with low weight or perhaps, you know, um, people that are not in larger bodies, they miss the fact that someone can be struggling from an, an eating disorder no matter what their body size is. So oftentimes Black and, and Latinx individuals may get more medical attention to weight problems, sort of seeing that they, you know, need to lose weight in order to be able to deal with medical issues rather than really understanding that there is an eating disorder going on there. What are some of the factors that contribute to these higher rates? The research that's coming out right now that I think is really important research is that um, the role of food insecurity and the development of an eating disorder. You know, it's only been recently that we've, we've really studied that. You know, the, the thought was that, you know, it's, it's really about just how you look and wanting to diet and whatnot, but actually there is a component sometimes of not having access to food. And particularly for women, if they don't have access to food, they oftentimes will feed their children and not feed themselves. Can you tell me a little bit more about the barriers to treatment that these patients might face? I think just the just the impact of historical racism and cultural beliefs that contribute to an underutilization by minority communities um, with health services in general and eating disorders in particular. Understandably, there's a strong distrust of mental health systems that have uh, not necessarily been designed in, in in our best interest. So there's a lot of concern about that and. Fears that you know they may not be understood or helped, um, and the fact that um, there is a lack of diversity in healthcare providers. What sort of symptoms should providers and patients be looking for? We're, we're really, you know, a, a lot of the research is, is lacking, or it is it's not, you know, as far along as we would like because. I think being different does make a difference and it's important to sort of understand what some of these differences are. What I would say is in in terms of this presentation, sometimes coming from a different cultural background, let's just say like black, um, a black individual, black person and and a Latinx person, there may be less cultural drive to thinness. That that may not be the um, most overriding struggle that the individual is experiencing. But it doesn't mean that they're not having very significant body image issues, you know, that it may have more to do with the skin color or hair texture, or it may be the, the size of certain body parts that are that are an issue. What you see a little bit differently in um, people of color is this role and impact of stigma, this sense of somehow feeling shamed you know, dealing with microaggressions each and every day and how that may impact their coping style. All right, let's do a little summation for number 10, okay? Let's sum it up. Now, what do we want, people? You want some land? Huh? You want some land? Type it up. You want land? You want bread? Small farmers have faced challenges acquiring land for decades. That's especially true for farmers of color who own just 2% of farm businesses across the country. Now the pandemic has made those problems even worse. Worse and worse and worse. Demand for housing in rural areas has soared. That's driven up the cost of farmland outside of New York City and is pricing farmers out. Greta Moran is a senior reporter covering this issue for the website Civil Eats. Dr. Gabriela Pereira is the co-director of the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust, and they join us now. Gabby and Greta, welcome to WNYC. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Greta, how much have prices for farmland in New York gone up during the pandemic, and where has that been most dramatic? So between 
June 2020 and June 2021, farmland prices in New York went up by 3.8%. So it's a, it's a really significant uptick in farmland prices and one that is troubling for many farmers, especially young farmers, farmers of color, and small-scale farmers who, as you said, have always struggled to access land. Um, as far as where this has been most dramatic, there isn't comprehensive county-level data on this. However, the Ulster County Board of Realtors, which represents multiple counties within the Hudson Valley, saw the number of farmland sales go up by 16% and the average sale price increase by 32% between January and December of 2021. Um, and this isn't a new trend. Farmland prices just outside of cities and just outside of New York City have generally been more expensive because of the land's potential to be developed into housing, but this has become significantly worse during the pandemic as more people fled New York City to the Hudson Valley. Gabby, you spoke with Greta about trying to acquire farmland in the Hudson Valley during the pandemic. Would you tell us about that experience and how was that different than how it might have been before the pandemic? So when my wife, a black woman, and me and Miss a race Latina decided to start farming. We discussed the how, but most importantly, the why we want to pursue land. Our wives came from ancestral connections to the land. We understood that farming is a way of public serving while providing fresh and quality food to our communities. When we start the how to look for land, it was very complicated because we start in when the pandemic was on the high peak and we were outbid every time that we put an offer uh, to land. For a couple that doesn't have generational wealth, for us it's impossible to have cash in hand, especially when we're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. So. It took us probably a year uh, to get into a land where we could do a lease to an agreement with the current landowner. Gabby, the U.S. has a long history of dispossessing people of color of land. For example, the forced relocation of indigenous people and USDA policies that discriminated against black farmers. Why is racial equity and the ownership of farm businesses so important? So we have seen since the beginning of the agricultural system in the United States, a lack of equity. In New York today, we have 33,000 farms. Only 168 farm business are owned by black farmers. So the problem stands to the stores when we buy our food because Farmers of color doesn't have access to distribution channels or to uh, profitable markets. We see as well that black and Latinas communities are not able to receive cultural appropriate food. In farmers market, you can see a lot of kale, but you don't see as much as uh, colors, green colors. I'm from the Caribbean, so we don't see many ají dulce. We see many serrano and habanero peppers that are relevant for some of our Latinos brothers and sisters and siblings, but not to the Caribbean. Uh, we see that uh, aromatic herbs like papalo, pepicha, 
are not, we cannot find those things in the supermarkets. Greta, what happens when farmers can't acquire land? So uh, it will effectively perpetuate the history that Gabby just described. Um, It could lead more marginalized farmers uh, to leave farming or to never enter the profession. Uh, The National Young Farmers Coalition found in a national survey that land access is the most significant challenge facing young farmers and the main reason why young people will decide to either not become a farmer or to leave the profession. So access to land in many ways determines who gets to be a farmer. Another consequence is that this may lead more farmers to rent rather than buy land. And this can really put farmers at a disadvantage. And finally, from a climate perspective, it's really important for farmers to be investing in the health of their land and soil, which takes time. But if farmers don't own the land and can be evicted at any time, they're likely not incentivized to invest in that land for the long term. Uh, Quickly, Greta, in terms of the consequences for people who are listening to the interview, what are the consequences uh, for them? Right. Uh, So if there aren't policies put in place to make land more accessible for New York farmers, um, especially the small-scale farmers, young farmers and, and farmers of color we've been talking about, then this will ultimately hurt New York's regional food system. And a lot of New York small farmers grow very high-quality crops and unique varieties of specialty crops. And then I also want to really emphasize that it's uh, very important that food is grown in a way that is climate-friendly right now. And farmers of color especially have long been doing that. So if farmers of color are pushed out of farming because of land access, or don't have a say over their land because they are a tenant farmer, uh, then there there are also consequences to the climate that affects us all. Greta Moran covers food systems and climate change for the website Civil Eats. Gabby Pereira is the co-director of the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, I was the first, one of the first. My first day was state trooper coming, putting me in the back seat of the car, and meeting the other black kids with six of us. And then seeing all of those parents and also KKK members uh, having signs and throwing cans at us, spitting at us. We lived in the threat of death every day, every day. So I was just lost in this vacuum uh, between integration and segregation and and racism. That was my childhood. I was angry for years. Angry. Very angry. Lloyd Smith doesn't describe himself in remarkable terms. I am um, an ordinary guy, uh, a black man, 66 years old. But he has a remarkable story to tell. It's the beginning of those 66 years he remembers vividly. So we were kind of a novelty. Smith grew up in Lima, Ohio. He was among the first group of black children to be bused across town to the all-white Westwood Elementary School in the early 1960s. Smith says the other kids didn't know what to make of their new classmates. They had never been around children of color and only had maybe seen, some of them had only seen people of color on television. And sometimes, Smith says, that ignorance translated to hostility. There were occasions uh, in the beginning where uh, some young students, as young as five, six, seven years old, called us the N-word. 
because they didn't know any better and they didn't uh, realize that it was something hurtful to us because this is what they heard at home. And so to them, that's just what you were called. Smith began attending Westwood Elementary almost a decade after the U.S. Supreme Court issued its landmark Brown versus Board of Education decision, which deemed segregation in public schools to be unconstitutional. You had the ruling in Brown, but there was not really a prescription for how to do it. Simone Drake is an African-American studies professor at The Ohio State University. She says it took time for desegregation to reach Ohio. A lot of times when you talk about integration or desegregation, people think of strictly of the South um, and, and often don't register that there, um, it wasn't segregation by law in the North, right? I mean, there wasn't Jim Crow, um, but there, there was segregation. Um, by practice. She grew up in Columbus and started kindergarten one year after busing was court mandated in the city in 1979. I took Columbus a little while to figure out how to get this implemented, but it went pretty smoothly, um, both from what I can tell from historical record as well as my own personal experience, once they actually got it launched. Schools across Ohio are generally much more diverse than they were half a century ago, but the struggles of the past continue into the present. Lima City Schools Superintendent Jill Ackerman says today's challenge is staffing. She recalls a major district effort in the early 1970s to bring in black teachers and administrators. I can remember when I was at North and I taught there and I was assistant principal there, the principal was an African-American man. They had gone down and brought him up from Mississippi. Him and his wife came. There were several administrators and teachers that they, they had gone down south and they had successfully brought them up here. They're all gone. They've, they've all retired and moved on. And our challenge continues to be trying to have a staff that is as diverse as our student population. And of course, racial divisions still exist outside the classroom as well. Lloyd Smith has been thinking a lot about that and what might bridge the gaps. And one of the answers he's come up with is music. It was a song that I listened to around New Year's that it was James Brown and Lucio Pavarotti. And it was, uh, this is a man's world. know uh, Luciano Pavarotti is not a soul singer or hip-hop and James Brown is not an opera singer but guess what they made beautiful music together Matthew Rand WOSU News this the city of Chicago schools teaching black history beyond the key figures in textbooks? It's a question Marcus Beelan thinks about as principal of Huntley High School in the far northwest suburbs. Beelan was part of the Black History Curriculum Task Force for the Illinois State Board of Education, and he wants students to connect history with what's happening around them, and sometimes that means he's part of the lesson. WBEZ's Susie Ann spoke with Beelan about Black History Month at his school. You're in a district where the diversity is growing, but, but the student population is predominantly white. So what does Black History Month look like at your school? Sometimes you are part of the lesson. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so um, I, I have the fortunate ability of 
being able to share some of my lived experiences uh, growing up as, a, as a, a black boy on the south side of Chicago. And there were some lived experiences that I, I went through. There were some challenges that I faced with race personally. And while it's not to go into a classroom and specifically teach them one way or the other what they should think or what they shouldn't think, it's giving them a different perspective. The students here at Huntley High School have not had a black principal, a black leader. And so being able to share my story um, and be able to inspire them and give them a different perspective is, is what I'm going to use. For me, even being here, it was culture shock for me being a principal, right? Coming into a predominantly white school and being able to lead people naturally when race comes about are going to look for some guidance. And so I listen to their stories and listen to their perspective to see where they're coming from, but try to find the moments in which they can challenge me and I can also challenge them. So being able to, to pop into a classroom and engage in conversation with them uh, and teach has been, has been fun. It's been great to be connected to that work, but also a critical moment in which I want to make sure we utilize opportunities that they could potentially face when they leave Huntley High School and how they should handle it and help coach them through that. Talk about, you know, the difference of hearing the experience of their own principal versus something that they might just read in a textbook. Yeah. And and that that's critical for me, because if if I gave you just the bullet points of I was a black male growing up on the south side of Chicago, you know, taking public transportation to school some days, walking to school, people could draw on. One, what they think of Chicago. Two, what they think of Chicago right now and the landscape of violence and things like that and begin to craft their own story. And that was not something that I, I came from, right? Like I came from a very um, uh, positive upbringing. Like I had a family that's deeply rooted in education uh, that I didn't come from like a bunch of money, but I also a middle class home. Right. Like my story is not that unique of I came from the slums of Chicago and I'm look at where I am now. And that's not the story in which I want our young people to always think we need to gravitate toward. And again, sharing those sharing those lived experiences gives them the perspective that I wasn't immune to just because of my upbringing. I wasn't immune to what is taking place in the city, but it it affected me and impacted me a little bit differently. Yeah, those are definitely important lessons that, um, you know, you, you might not find in the classroom every day. And I'm wondering, how has it resonated with students to hear from you, your experience? Last week, I was just in an English classroom of seniors. And, you know, seniors, they've hit senioritis. They're like graduation. They got a countdown going. They are ready. They're thinking about prom. And to sit and have some open dialogue for them to be able to hear from me the bell rang and we didn't even realize like it's time to go to the next class, not the next class. This was actually dismissal. And typically seniors are like they're booking it to the to the parking lot. And they were sitting there like we want more and they want me to come back. And I actually want to go back because just the interactions that I had with them and the questions that they were asking were were awesome. But they were experiences that they would never be able to hear or learn about growing up in the suburbs of Chicago out in Huntley. You know, this is. This is a vehicle in which I'm able to expose them to something a little bit beyond the classroom and even beyond the text in which they may be sitting in front of. Principal Marcus Bielan speaking with WBEZ's Susie Ann. This is WBEZ. In Virginia, them guns go bang, bang. In Virginia, them guns go bang, bang. In Virginia, them guns go bang, bang. Niggas, bang, bang. Governor Glenn-
President Youngkin asked the General Assembly to use emergency funding to help with security at historically black colleges and universities. Those schools include Hampton University and Norfolk State University. Each school had a bomb threat made against it last week. And Sparaco caught up with Hampton's president to talk about the situation many HBCUs have faced. Hampton University President Dr. William Harvey says his students and staff are carrying on with safety in mind after a bomb threat last week. You know, any kind of threat is something that uh, I do not obviously agree with. And, and again, one, one doesn't know. One doesn't know where it's coming from. Two days later, another historically black university, Norfolk State, received a bomb threat. Now, Governor Glenn Youngkin wants to use emergency funding from the state to help advance the school's security. I'm just pleased that the governor thinks well of what we had proposed to him. Harvey says if the General Assembly approves the funding, he would like to use it to increase police surveillance around the campus and improve the school's technology. To, to get some cyber security support. And that would include such things as uh, support and uh, funding for fiber infrastructure upgrade. We could take out some of the old wiring that uh, our, our institutions had. Hampton and NSU are not alone. The FBI says it is investigating threats to nearly 60 minority institutions across the country, including HBCUs. In Norfolk, I'm Ann Sparocco for 13 News Now. And the governor is waiting on the General Assembly's decision. If it approves the emergency funding, they will need to decide how to divvy up the money. The United Nations estimates that more than one million people have fled Ukraine since last week. Getting out hasn't been easy, though, especially for international students and workers. Last Friday, Alexander Somto Oro was one of thousands of people trying to board trains at Kyiv Station. He's a 25-year-old Nigerian student, and he was desperate to flee. When we got to the station, um, they told us women and children first. So we said, OK, that's not a problem. But... We found out that what they meant by women and children was only white people. So we started getting angry and we decided that we are going to protest. We started shouting and you said women and children, but you're not allowing African women. The next train came in and said, okay, where are the African women? We pushed all of them to the front so that they can be able to get to the train. That was the only way they could get. If we didn't protest, it wouldn't be possible for them to, to get into the train. Later in the day, Alexander and his friends tried again to get on a train. Officials stopped them at the doors. They said Ukrainians only. That was the train to Poland. I and other two Africans, we jumped in and they called police on us. The police came and dragged us out of the train and said, this is only for Ukrainians. And then I was looking, uh, expecting them to check passport. As they were boarding people, no passport was being checked. So that made us knew that this is actually not for us Africans. Alexander was determined and eventually tried to board yet another train. There was a train that was coming. It was in the other track. Then we jumped on the train. The train was already leaving. So we were, help, we were holding the, the door handle. The train officer of the train cabin crew, they told us that we should get down. Then we told them that they either open this door or we die on the road. 
So they had no other option than to open the door and, and allow us in. And we found out that we were the only Africans in the train and the train was not filled. So if the, if the train was not full, why are they doing that? Why can't they at least put some of the Africa, even if it's in one cabin? There have been many reports of racial discrimination as African and South Asian nationals tried to flee Ukraine and cross borders into neighboring countries. Jesse Michael Gogo is a 24-year-old medical student from Ghana who is studying in western Ukraine. He's now in Warsaw, Poland. Jesse, hello. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. I'm just traumatized based on like experience and stuff like that. I want to talk about that experience. Tell me about leaving Ukraine. Why did you feel that you needed to leave the country? Um, I had friends in like different cities where we realized um, gradually the fight and the bomb was really approaching us. I was in a different city. So apparently like my city's uh, military base got bombed. So once we had the news, I think the next day, my friend and I decided we need to start moving immediately. So that was when we started, we started moving. And that was on a Friday, if I quite remember very well. That was on a Friday. So we had to get a cab. And um, he, the, the cab driver drove us to like a nearby village where we started walking. And we walked for 12 good hours to get to the border. For 12 hours? Yes, 12 good hours. What was that like, walking for 12 hours to get to the border? Uh, honestly, my feet still hurt after like four or five days. It was it was really bad. No water, no food, nothing. Just walking with my friends. Describe what that was like. I mean, were there other people who were out there? Did you see other groups of people who were walking to the border? There were a lot of people walking to the border. A lot, number, huge number. Man, it was it was it was it was really it was really bad. People had to like leave their stuff. You could see people drop their suitcase. You you could see people like remove stuff from their suitcase for it to to be less heavy. So it, it was it was really bad. What were you? Really what what did bad. you take with you? Um, I just took a backpack and like a little suitcase with me. And how did you decide what you would put in in that in that backpack and suitcase? You're fleeing. You don't know if or when you're going to be coming back. Yeah, you know, I'm a I'm I'm a final year medical student, so I had to get like my 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 documents, my laptop, um, like some few clothes. And so you walk for 12 hours to get to the border. What happened when you got to the border? When I got to the it was we saw I saw like almost 10,000 people trying to enter a small gate, a small gate. And um, apparently when, when I got to the border, I had to wait in the queue for like hours. I got to the first gate and we're told uh, international students aren't supposed to use this gate. So we're supposed to use another gate. So I had to go back and join another queue facing another gate. When I went there, um, we were being more treated by people. We were being uh, the police, the military men. Were, I actually fought with like, two different military men because of their attitude. It was very bad and appalling to us students. Let me let me ask you about two things. One is you said that you went to the gate and the international students were not allowed to go through that gate. Who was going through that gate? Just uh, just Europeans and I think um, pregnant women and yeah females. And, and then you, well. you go to the other gate. You wait for how long? I waited for days, over twenty four hours. And then you said that the treatment from the military men was enough that that you got into a fight with two of them. Tell me about the treatment. Yes. How were you treated? They made we're we're being beaten, we're being pushed at any point in time. 
Um, we were being strangled. We, we were told to kneel down in the cold. We were told to sleep on the floor. I had other friends collapse, and um, they were not being taken care of based on, like, um, their... You know, we're just pushing each other for every single person to to pass through the gate. So, like, it was it was really, really bad. It was a very, very bad experience. Were you treated differently than than others who were crossing the border? Yes. Um, there were two different gates. One gate was for um, the Ukrainians, and the other gate was for um, international students. So the Ukrainian gate was being opened consistently. They were going five, and then I think five, 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 five. And um, the international students was very, like, the military men at the gate would leave for five good hours, come back, come and call women and um, pregnant women and children. Though pregnant women and children will pass through the gate, they'll close the gate and leave again. We, the guys, were just there. We're, we're, like, we didn't know what to do. We're just... Honestly, I just feel like I should just fall or like just return back to my city, and because uh, it was really bad, like the experience was really traumatizing. Mm. You're from Ghana. Were most of the international students African students? Is 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 that what you were seeing? Yeah, most of most of them were African students. We had Africans, Arabians, Indians, a whole lot. What was it like to to face that kind of treatment, given the, everything that you had gone through already, just to get to the border? Honestly, I wouldn't wish this experience for anyone because, like, uh, I felt like I was a prisoner at a point. I felt like I couldn't even breathe. I felt like um, people that were, you know, I'm a medical, I'm a medical, I'm aspiring to be a medical doctor. So uh, people that were falling sick were not given the proper uh, first aid. It was very bad. Anyone could do CPR. Anyone could do, like, any kind of thing. Do you understand? And because I'm in the line, I can't go back. So I'll have to leave someone that has just fainted and focus on me getting to the gate. That was everyone's goal. How did you eventually get across the border into Poland? Um, I, it was it was a struggle. After after twenty four hours, I managed to get myself in front of the gate, and um, due to like the disturbances and stuff like that, um, the civilians had to like open the gate a little bit whilst the military men weren't there and everyone was rushing in. So when it got to my, my turn, um, the military men came and pushed the gate towards me. So my leg went under the gate and like they were, my, the gate scratched my legs. So I was screaming and screaming and screaming. I screamed for like almost 30, 25, 25, 30 minutes. And um, one military man just pulled me out of the gate. That was how I entered him. How do you understand what happened to you? This is in the midst of, of people fleeing a war. And we know that the United Nations has, has confirmed stories like yours, saying that, that refugees, uh, international students, and others faced racism at, at the Ukrainian borders. How do you understand this? Yes, we, we did. We did. Based on the fact that um, we blacks were not allowed to enter as much as the Ukrainians or other European, European countries could. So like we just we just felt like um, we, they were just being racist at the points, cause uh, my friends, you know, the military men normally stand at the gates to call pregnant women, women and children, and when a black girl is behind them, the black girl sometimes the black girl is not allowed to pass, 
which was which didn't make sense to anyone. Had you faced much racism when you were studying in Ukraine? No, not really. So this was a this was very different than than the previous years yeah. that you'd been there. Yeah, yeah. When I, I said hello to you, you said that you still felt traumatized by this. What's what's the the after effect of this being for you? Honestly, I'm up to now. I'm not being able to sleep well. Um, I still keep thinking of my friends because some of my friends are still at the border. Um, yesterday, I met a friend that just came to um, Warsaw, the capital, and the moment she saw me, she just started crying. And I could feel, I, I just could feel it because, like, the experience was bad. She fainted twice. So, like, the after effect is just, I, I couldn't think straight at the point because I'm still thinking of my friends back there. I can't sleep. I can't sleep right. Um, my friends and I are really struggling to, like, gain our normal senses back because sometimes we are hallucinating and other things like that. What will you do now? All we have to do is um, try to calm down and um, pray to God. That's all. Will you stay in Warsaw? I mean, you said this is your final year as a medical student. You're you're training to be a doctor. So what happens next? Yes, that's for now. I'm waiting for a message from my university concerning the situation, so I know what I'll do. Because like my parents are telling me to go to the UK, where I have an immediate family member to be safe for now and we'll know what to do from then if my um my school is to bring out any information so do you think you'll get back to to ukraine honestly no i'm glad to talk to you i'm really really glad that you made it to the other side you've been through a lot so thank you for speaking with us and good luck thank you so much sir take care bye-bye Bye-bye. Jesse Michael Gogo is a student from Ghana who is studying in western Ukraine. We reached him in Warsaw, Poland. Since stories like this have started to emerge, many governments in the region have made statements that all those fleeing should be treated fairly. Ukraine's foreign ministry tweeted yesterday that it had established an emergency hotline for African, Asian, and other students, and that the government was working intensively to ensure their safety and speed up their passage. Juliana Valgren is acting director and senior advocacy officer for the European Network Against Racism. She's in Brussels. Juliana, hello to you. Hello. Good morning. How are, are, you, are you? I'm well. Are you at all surprised to hear reports of racist abuse and unfair treatments by security officials towards those who are fleeing the war in Ukraine? Yes, it's overwhelming. It's really sad, but it's not a surprise. It's not the first time, and it's really recurrent. What is impressive here is really the double standards, uh, comparing um, who is able, who is allowed to cross the border and who's not allowed. And um, visually, the, um, the issue of racial profiling is really what uh, worries us the most. So... Um, what we have seen over the last days, over the last weekend, um, was really um, an amplification of the current status of racism across Europe. But with this element of police violence, racial profiling, and violations of fundamental rights at the borders, especially in moments of crisis. So what we're trying to understand here is where the member states where the uh, national authorities should be held accountable mm. by the issues that by the situation by the, the, the whole the whole treatment um 
uh, towards migrants at the current stage. What, what is your understanding as to where this is occurring? Is it by Ukrainian officials or officials that are in the receiving countries where those who are fleeing are ending up? From our understanding, Matt, and I think it's it is very, it's also very difficult to um, make a concrete analy analysis of the situation. Mm. But from the narrative and the testimonies that we have collected, um, people face um, um, violations and um, really being buried by law enforcement authorities in both sides. So first, they 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 face a really some challenge with their current authorities, and there is a split like was mentioned before, uh, of white Ukrainians and people of color. Um, and then when, once they cross the borders, and sometimes even when they are, um, they manage to seek international protection immediately, sometimes they are returned to the border because they are not even allowed to stay in the country. And then, of course, you have a ramification of different violations uh, in these cases. Um, there are people who are not being granted any kind of protection. There are people that are getting 15 days of protections when Ukrainians are getting free maps. So it's really complex in terms of um, where what is the responsible of all uh, this um, sequence of events? I think um, it's 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 a it's a it's a very it's a very um, uh, complex uh, question to answer because here I think the responsibility uh, should be uh, should be um, addressed to everyone. How encouraged are you by? what I mentioned in the introduction. The Ukrainian government has put together this hotline and the message uh, that the foreign ministry and others are putting out is that everyone should be treated fairly. Uh, let's hope that European authorities li uh, listen and hear this message because what we are seeing today and especially in the discussions and the proposal of the European Commission is really an attempt to still have a classification of people who can enter and how they enter and how they're going to be protected after they cross the borders. So although I think it's really important to uh, uh, embrace this narrative and really make sure that politicians understand that we cannot um, make a separation, a split between uh, the different categories of citizens. We cannot continue to uh, talk about uh, no Ukrainians in this spectrum as second-class citizens. Although we embrace uh, um, this code, what we really want to see is political commitment. It's what comes next. Mm. Um, it's, and what we want to do is also to understand how after they manage to cross the borders, uh, once the documents and the protection is really granted to these people, how the member states will treat them. Because race is something that is not new in Europe, but the recognition of races is something that is very recent. Do not forget that even the question of the colonial abuses, even the history, the colonialism aspect, are not included in many European books. So, it, well, yes. let, let me ask you about that bigger picture because, as you said, this is an amplification in many ways of racism in in Europe. We saw the Prime Minister of Bulgaria say that these are uh, the Prime Minister's words. This is not the refugee wave we have been used to. People we were not sure about their identity. People with unclear pasts who could have been even terrorists. We know that in Poland, um, and we spoke about this on this program just last year, refugees who were trying to cross the border with Belarus were pushed back in the cold. Uh, there was water cannon used, tear gas was used. Uh, Turkey uh, has seen uh, 
it be a hub in some ways for this and that have we've seen those refugees uh, end up in back push back into Turkey in Hungary there have been issues as well what's the bigger issue here when you see this around who's considered a refugee a legitimate refugee and who's considered a European always respond to these questions, um, by being objective. So what you have to take a look is the how the European Union, how the member states have respond, responded to similar crises since 2012, 2015. They always have um, had a kind of um, approach that probably, which was a problem that was from the member states, that it was local, it was up to the member states to resolve. They, they tried to come with a coordinated approach but that was not binding and there was in a certain time frame that was shorter than the, the really um, uh, problem of the migration management crisis. And now for the first time, they are really addressing this as a responsibility, a duty of the union. So objectively, what you can say is that they never consider the other kind of migrants being asylum seekers, being refugees in resettlement, uh, 30 country nationals in need of international protected as people that should be prioritized in the programs of the union. And when you see uh, someone uh, coming from a country where um, there is already a set of negotiations to, um, to be a member of the union. And of course, uh, we are talking about Europeans that are massively not of color. Of course, in this time, there is more, let's say there is more a flexibility uh, in the terms of welcoming package for migrants. What is that about? At, at its, core, at its about, core, what do you think? What is it? What is it about? It's about the structural racism. It's about the color blindness of policies. It's about how race was um, removed uh, from all the European perspectives and how it was very uncomfortable and taboo until the um, until uh, COVID and George Floyd to address the question of racial justice in Europe. So this is just an amplification. It just uh, 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 a second layer to the, the question of the uh, system of inequalities that were there across the, the European Union over the centuries. Yeah. You see us saying there's no profiling, but it is. It is. We're being hunted every day. It's a silent war against African-American people as a whole. The jury has found former Kentucky police officer Brett Hankinson not guilty of all counts in that raid, you may remember, that killed Breonna Taylor. For more now, Alex Perez on the phone with us. He has been following this story from the very beginning. Uh, Alex, uh, I guess tell us what we know right now, and then let's give a little background and context to how this story uh, went down during that raid. Context. Sure, Kira. So the jury in this case here deliberating for just about three hours before they returned this not guilty verdict on all charges, acquitting uh, Detective Brett Hankinson uh, of the charges against him. Now, the thing we have to point out here, Kira, is that these charges were not related to Brianna Taylor's death. At this point, still no one has been charged in connection with her death. These charges, there were wanton endangerment charges, and they uh, were about the, the bullets the, 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 when uh, Hankinson fired his weapon the evening of that botched raid. Those bullets entered neighboring apartments. In one of those neighboring apartments, there were three people who uh, obviously could have been in danger had they been struck by a bullet. So those charges that he faced during this trial revolved around those bullets that entered 
the, the neighboring apartment. It was not about Breonna Taylor. And when the Attorney General, Kentucky Attorney General, uh, announced these charges several months ago, um, legal experts then said they thought it would be tough for a jury to um, uh, convict him of those charges. And it turns out uh, it seems they were right. Now, in court throughout this trial, the jurors heard about five days of witness testimony. Uh, the prosecutor argued that Hankinson, in firing his weapon that night, and, and when those bullets entered the neighboring apartment, uh, he showed extreme indifference to human life and that that was a crime. Um, but the defense argued that he was acting in defense of his fellow officers that evening, um, and that's why he opened fire. Uh, the jury uh, uh, siding with him in this case, Kara, uh, not guilty on all charges. And I think, uh, you know, Brianna Taylor's mother and several others uh, online, of course, unhappy with this, uh, expressing themselves on social media. But not only are they unhappy with this not guilty verdict, the bigger picture here that Brianna Taylor's mother and other activists are, are really unhappy with is that at this point still no one has been charged in connection with Breonna Taylor's death. Kira? Uh Alex, it's Terry. Thank you very much for that. And that, that puzzlement, which is there, there are bullets sprayed all over a completely innocent person's apartment. She was killed. There's no charge on that. And the people whose apartment was shot into, uh, this officer gets off, uh, according to law, that uh, uh, the wanton endangerment crime. Uh, as Alex just explained very succinctly, they decided that he was legitimately within his rights to use force because he was concerned that his fellow officers were being endangered by the, by the gunfire that, uh, th that came from Brianna's boyfriend. But I want to bring in criminal defense attorney Bernardo Villalona for more on this. So this was a, a reckless endangerment, wanton endangerment is the way they call it in Kentucky. Uh, the, a person commits a crime uh, when she, uh, he or she is wantonly engages in conduct which creates a substantial danger of death or serious physical injury to another person. Now, Bernardo, to a, to a lay person, they're spraying bullets all over the place. Now, do police get an extra pass there because even though they were completely wrong, didn't belong in that apartment, shouldn't have been there, shouldn't have been firing their weapons at these people. Is this an example of essentially that, that, that we give police more, obviously more authority to use lethal force, and when they, even when they get it wrong, more leeway from juries? So, Terry, it's not that the police are getting more leeway for getting it wrong. What it is is that, look, we determined that there were many issues with the search warrant, and those issues with the search warrant is what led to the death of Breonna Taylor. The reality is, is that the prosecution could not prove that Brett Hankinson consciously disregarded that substantial and unjustifiable risk. And that's the problem the prosecution had from day one, because Brett Hankinson argued, and successfully, that he wasn't aware that there was an apartment behind Breonna Taylor's apartment where the bullets would be able to enter that, well, those doors and endanger those people. Uh, that is a, a, a whole thing is, is a puzzlement, as I say, to the layperson. But, Bernarda, we want to thank you for explaining that for us. And thanks to Alex Perez as well on that breaking news. Thanks for being with us. Once again, police being up on people. Back up. Back up and get on that step. Okay. Back up. All he did was break up a fight. And this is what happens for breaking up a fight. This is a disgrace 
this is a test in this city, and we intend to keep the pressure on. A trial is looming for a Jackson deputy marshal accused of choking a teenager, and now he faces even more legal trouble for what a fellow officer says he did that night. Our lead investigator, Scotty Hunter, is here now, and Scotty, this latest court battle could mean that not only the officer, but the department in town could be in some trouble, too. Yeah, that's right, Greg. Here is a copy of that federal lawsuit filed against Deputy Clay DePew. Not only is the officer being accused of wrongdoing, but attorneys argue the department and the town should be held responsible because they knew he was not a good hire before they let him loose on the street. This federal lawsuit says Deputy Clay DePew should have never been hired to patrol the streets of Jackson, mainly because of his checkered past, a past we first found almost a year ago after he was accused of wild behavior, choking a teenager, and using racial slurs. The fact that we were able to find out that this officer had been charged and let go from another law enforcement agency, and now he's here, like, why is that such a problem? It's a problem because if you knew, then they knew. If there was a background check performed, for this employment, they knew. DePew eventually turned himself in. That trial is set to go in June. This lawsuit, separate from that case, names the deputy, the Jackson Police Department, the chief, and the town, saying they all played a part in what happened. Every opportunity that we have to establish the record of the wrongdoing that some of these bad actors are performing in our streets, um, we're going to take it every time. Back in February last year, the teen and his friend showed up to this gas station. Once they got there, the lawsuit claims Deputy DePew immediately got aggressive, calling the teen the N-word and choking him. This is surveillance video from the store that night. It does not capture the encounter, but a source close to the case tells the 9 News investigators another officer who was on the scene that night had to step in to pull DePew off the teen. The other officer's testimony is what ultimately led to the charges against DePew. We wouldn't be here without him, so we just um, were really thankful for that that involvement of the other officer um, because this could have ended really bad. Even with that testimony, this is the only video from that night. When we first started asking questions about the case, we were able to find out the officer was equipped with a body camera and that officers with the Jackson Marshal's office have had those cameras since 2015. Despite the officer being equipped with a body camera, though, no other video was captured that night. He was equipped, but we have no, there's, there's no video from it, of course. And we're not surprised by it. The Nine News investigators have exposed a prior criminal history with the same officer showing DePew was arrested and fired from another agency back in 2017. According to arrest reports from the Point Capi Sheriff's Office, DePew was arrested for stalking and malfeasance in office. We tried to find out more information about those charges, but they were expunged. The records were wiped away a little more than two weeks before he was accused of choking the 16-year-old, but they should have been visible before that time. This attorney says that calls into question whether DePew should have even been hired in the first place. In fact, she alleges the town and the police department did not properly look into the officer before giving him a gun and a badge. He's got some very serious allegations out there that never should have gone unchecked. All right, so Scotty Hunter out here with us now. Scotty, there's some other allegations in this lawsuit. Yeah, Greg, this lawsuit accuses DePew of also roughing up black drivers at traffic stops, including tackling a woman, beating a man in the face with a flashlight, and slamming another man's head into the concrete. So uh, this is something that we're going to continue to follow that attorney, though, calling this a pattern that just has to be stopped. All right, Scotty, thank you. Appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Stop using and selling drugs to one another. See, we're getting ready to be put in a real trap with this legalization of marijuana. 
So everybody, every black person can be unemployed and then they can sit in their corner and get high on marijuana with whatever they decide to put in it. And people won't be asking for jobs, being determined that they're going to get jobs and going to get an education. No, everybody can start getting high on marijuana because somebody said it's medicinal and it's legal. What about so we better beware. What about the people who say the legalization of marijuana is fighting against racism because you have so many black people who are unjustly incarcerated as a result of racist enforcement of these drug laws? So this would be a good thing and it would keep black people out of greater confinement. No, we can we can do it by stop using and selling drugs to one another. See, if I'm not using drugs, then I can't be incarcerated for drugs. And I see so many males, young males in my practice who have become psychotic, almost never to return to normal from marijuana use because you don't know what's in it. You don't know how it's been genetically altered. Again, everything has to be put in the context. Drug deaths among black Americans continue to surge. For the first time since the opioid epidemic began, the rate of drug overdose deaths for African Americans is higher than among whites. That's according to a new study published today in the journal JAMA Psychiatry. NPR addiction correspondent Brian Mann reports. As recently as 2010, drug deaths among black Americans per capita were about half the rate of white Americans. But as the opioid crisis kept exploding, a deadly trend emerged. The drug death rate among black Americans accelerated, catching up, and now exceeding that among whites. I do think that people are starting to realize the magnitude of this problem. Joseph Friedman, an addiction researcher at UCLA, looked at drug death data from 1999 through 2020 and says the biggest factor killing more black people with substance use disorder is fentanyl. The street drug supply is becoming very, very toxic. Because of fentanyl, drug use is more deadly for all Americans. But this new study suggests black Americans who struggle with addiction often have even riskier sources of street drugs. That's according to Dr. Helena Hansen, a researcher at UCLA and co-author of this study. People who are lower down on the social hierarchy tend to be exposed to fentanyl and other highly potent synthetic opioids at disproportionate rates. So you find black Americans are exposed to fentanyl more often than white Americans. Hansen notes black Americans with substance use disorder also frequently lack access to health care and drug treatment. They're arrested and incarcerated at far higher rates, which means they have fewer chances to get healthy and avoid deadly relapses. This research follows a study published last month that forecast more than 1.2 million additional drug overdose deaths in the U.S. in the coming decade. Dr. Stephen Taylor with the American Society of Addiction Medicine says the data suggests his community will bear the brunt of the next phase of the opioid epidemic. I am terrified of that prospect. A larger percentage of this next million will be black and other people of color. These researchers agree the best way to prevent many of those deaths in the black community is better health care and more access to addiction treatment. Brian Mann, NPR News. This question, why... Is this stuff happening? The New York Times article, I mean, editorial today. The Trump effect 
See, this is what I'm doing with my money, buying newspapers like Dick Gregory. <laughs> the Trump effect and how it spreads. It says we are on the brink, under, under Trump, on the brink of fascism. New York Times, all the news that's fit to print, editorial 1210-2015. I say fascism is in stage white supremacy. See, it's, I mean, just like in Nazi Germany. Fascism, system of racism, white supremacy, determined to survive. We begin with the latest developments in Akron, where the FBI is investigating what could be a federal hate crime. This entire incident was caught on video. We want to warn you now, the footage is disturbing. A 26-year-old man yelled racial slurs and punched two women outside of a bar. Our Carmen Blackwell has more on the charges he faces. It was a Saturday night on the town with the girls for 23-year-old Cameron Morgan until things took a dark turn. Enveloped in darkness, hence utterly dismal or gloomy, as the future looked black, soiled with dirt, foul, sullen, hostile, forbidding, as a black day. I always get like those racial comments and the slurs, but I've never once had it be taken to the physical level. Morgan and her girlfriends were walking through Highland Square when they heard 26-year-old Andrew Walls yelling racial slurs outside a bar. In this viral video a member for Posse recorded, you can hear Morgan try to get Walls to stop as she and her friends try to pass through. And then Walls charges at Morgan, calling her derogatory names, and then this, a punch right to Morgan's face before hitting another young woman just out of the frame. I just was so shocked. I noticed that I saw uh, a weapon in his waistband that wasn't in a holster, and I know that's, and he was clearly intoxicated, so I knew that was a sign. I was like, this isn't good, so. Highland Square is known as Akron's melting pot, home to a large community of different ages, races, and backgrounds. Akron police say hate crimes like these have no place in the city. It impacts our entire community. I have looked on social media, the, the comments, the outrage, and, and as a police department, as a community, we are in agreement that it's outrageous. That's not Akron. That's not what we support. This afternoon, Walls turned himself into Akron police, where he faces two assault charges and a possession of a firearm while intoxicated. But Walls' violent and racial outburst is causing for more than the Akron community to press on for justice. Well, what's really heartbreaking for me is that you feel like you're taking two steps forward and one step backwards. Both national and local organizations like the Council on American Islamic Relations and the Akron NAACP chapter are speaking out, calling on federal law enforcement to press full charges against Walls for committing a hate crime. Violence against women, first of all, is cowardly, period. Mm -hmm. Violence in this situation is nothing but a hate crime, period. We cannot accept it. We won't accept it. It cannot keep going on like this. Well, the FBI is now involved. They are investigating this incident, and police are still working to get more details on that second victim that Wall struck there in the midst of the video as well. Meanwhile, Cameron Morgan is still trying to 
weekend. Okay, Carmen Blackwell in the newsroom. Thank you. We want to give you an update now on the case of the Akron man, excuse me, the Kent man, accused of yelling racial slurs and attacking two women in Akron. 26-year-old Andrew Walls is being held on a $25,000 bond on charges of assault and weapons while intoxicated. The FBI is also looking into the case to determine if Walls should face a federal hate crime charge as well. His next court date is set for March 11th. Dog here today for Tuesday, March 1st, goes to John Dempsey. Uh, who is John Dempsey? John Dempsey was a top executive with Estee Lauder. Okay, you know the makeup company, Estee Lauder. Uh, John Dempsey was a senior executive there. In fact, he was the executive group president. I don't know what that means, but it sounds important. Either way, he was told by Estee Lauder that he must leave the company this week after he shared material on his Instagram account that does not reflect the values of the Estee Lauder companies. That damn social media strikes again. All right. The problem with social media is your page is probably boring if it reflects the values of the company you work for. All right. Nobody wants to follow a basic boring page that's reflecting its company's values. We want to be entertained by any means necessary. And that's what this senior executive at Estee Lauder, John Dempsey, did yesterday. Uh, he chose entertainment over Estee Lauder. See, John got fired because he posted a meme. The meme was Sesame Street themed. What do you mean, Uncle Charlotte? It was Sesame Street themed. It was a mock cover of a little golden book. It had Big Bird on the cover with a mask on, sitting next to Snuffleupagus, sick in bed. And the title said, and I'm quoting the title, my nigga Snuffy done got the Rona at a Chingy concert. Now, for us regular folks, that's just a regular day on social media, just a regular meme. But John Dimsey is 65 years old, and he's a 65-year-old white man who works at Estee Lauder. Let's unpack this, as my therapist would say now. I like funny. Okay, I guess some might even say I have a sixth sense of humor. I appreciate people who can find the funny in any and everything. But here's the thing about that meme. It wasn't even funny. To me, at least, maybe I don't get the joke. I didn't understand it. Sesame Street, Big Bird, Snuffleupagus, Chingy Concert, COVID. My nigga Stuffy done got the Rona at a Chingy Concert. What does that even mean? Okay, I don't see the correlation at all. That's the first problem. The second problem is John Dempsey's apology. I can't say whether his apology was sincere or not. I'm sure he's apologetic, but it was the reasoning. He said, I am terribly sorry and deeply ashamed that I hurt so many people when I made the horrible mistake of carelessly reporting a racist meme without reading it beforehand. Okay, I don't need to hear anymore. If you didn't read the meme beforehand, John, then what did you even post it for? Was it for the picture? Did you think Big Bird in a mask sitting bedside while Snuffleupagus was sick was such a compelling picture that the world needed to see it? Who doesn't read memes before they post them? Envy, have you ever read a, didn't read a meme before you posted it? No. Angelie, have you ever not read a meme before you posted it? Nope. Anybody in this room, have they ever done that? No, nobody does that. There are certain rules in life one must follow, okay? Like you know you can't bring liquids through TSA. 
You know you shouldn't feed gremlins after midnight. Well, mogwai after midnight. All right? You don't say Candyman three times in a mirror. And never, ever, ever post a meme without reading it. Nobody does that. Okay? We all post memes because we've read them. <laughs> okay? That's the whole point of posting a meme. Because we've read it. And we like them. And they either motivated us, enraged us, or made us laugh. So we share those memes with, with our followers so that our followers can feel the way that we do. John, you knew exactly what you was doing, and I would have respected you more if you said, hey, I just thought it was funny, okay? I didn't know any better, all right? And I thought the N-word was used in context, all right? I didn't think it was racist. I didn't personally say it. It's all types of other things you could have said. It was on a meme, all right? That right there would have opened up a discussion, a debate, but to say you didn't read the meme? Nobody believes that. Now, Esther Villada must have, you know, heard your excuse and said, oh, word, well, I can do you better. All right, you didn't read the meme before you posted it? Well, they released a statement that said John Dempsey wasn't fired, but rather was told he had to leave the company and agreed to retire this week. Now, I should give y'all donkey of the day for that. What's the difference between getting fired and getting told to leave the company? You're not giving me any other options, all right? That's when you tell somebody, you don't got to go home, but you have to get the hell out of her. See what I did there? The chingy, her, the oh, okay. COVID, sesame. All right. Okay, all right. <laughs> Tough crowd. Clever. Tough crowd. Uh, please give John Dempsey the biggest hee haw. And I was going to just ignore this, but I just have to say, for Candyman, it's five times, not three. Oh, it's five? Yeah. In the oh, mirror. I didn't know. I thought it was three it times. It just bothered me. I was like, I was going to let it slide, but I just had to, you know. I didn't know. I thought it was three times. You want a battle? It's better to look in a mirror. Say Candyman five times. Strive for accuracy. Gus T always appreciates that, even if it is I who has to be corrected. Strive for accuracy. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade, the black O.J. Simpson. And for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, March 5, 2022. So I have been told. Our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, questions, observations, counter-racist suggestions to offer. The number is 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. This year broadcast not for spectators. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Before we get to the folks who dialed in, for one, there had been mild issues we've had issues for the full 13 years that we've been broadcasting but there had been minor issues with getting some of the archives uploaded uh, I typically 
as soon as the program concludes, I immediately like I don't go get a sandwich. I don't make a smoothie, eat a banana. I immediately commence uploading the audio, make sure it's in the archives so people can download and all the rest of it for about the past maybe seven, ten days or so. When I attempt to do this, for some reason, the audio it'll upload, but it's not for whatever reason going to the feed. So if you downloaded it, say Apple, uh, Apple Podcasts or whatever else, whatever other site, it's not there. Uh, and so it would take a few hours. Sometimes it would be until the next morning. Sometimes it would just take uh, instead of this being something that could happen instantly as soon as the program is done, it would take three, four hours after the program concludes and then it would finally post and be available. Uh, hopefully yesterday this didn't happen. It was back just like old times uploaded pretty immediately. So hopefully that will continue. Uh, I know we did have some listeners who reported, oh man, I was doubly pained. Uh, so the current book, The Man in the High Castle, that's what we're reading in the Cows Book Club. We're almost done. In fact, we will wrap it up this coming Thursday. The book is not that long. Hallelujah. Um, but we've had poor participation. Some of it might be the tech issues because we had at least one person who said that they were having difficulty uh, accessing the archives of the book club. They voted for they wanted to read this book, The Man in the High Castle, and have not been able to participate live or what have you. So, uh, one, I have posted all of the archived content. I generally post all of our archived programs uh, on social media. So if you follow, we're on uh, Twitter at Until Justice on Facebook dot com forward slash the problem is white people and my Facebook page is public uh, so you don't have to have a page or anything to just be able to go and look and see the content uh, and what have you but either way uh, I do post the archives uh, via social media and then as I said we're on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and Blueberry YouTube Black Talk Radio Network like they even more outlets than that that's just you know how many do you need um, but there are many, many outlets uh, where you can access the program. If there is a problem, if you go to one of these outlets or all of them and the content is not there or it's not playing or you don't think it's the full content or whatever the issue is, feel free. Drop me an email until justice at Gmail dot com. I will do my best to assist. Uh, if you do not see the content, don't just, you know, hang out, not say anything uh, that, you know, we want to be more active, uh, responsive uh, in a system of racism, white supremacy, where there is a great deal of sabotage for people who attempt counter racism. So definitely speak up and let me know. I will do my best to assist. And if you have uh, any suggestions on things that would uh, make it easier so that you can access the broadcast and what have you yourself and or others, let me know. Much obliged. Uh, let's see. substance abuse came up a lot of different ways today I did not play a report on Brittany Griner a professional basketball player uh, black female I think there's some sexual confusion there maybe even a cowbell uh, two-time Olympic gold medalist victim of white supremacy but they had reports that she was arrested in Russia uh, reportedly or at least the charges that she had uh, vape cartridges uh, of something related to some sort of marijuana or cannabis derivative uh, may have been CBD or whatever else but 
whatever it is, the substance is, I guess, prohibited in that part of the world. So she was arrested. Uh, we will have to see how the charges go and all that. Wish her the best. I hope that she's safe and is able to get back uh, home to this part of the world uh, as soon as possible, as safely as possible. I was reminded we heard a lot of Dr. Welsing's voice today. Her birthday is this month. I wrote that her birthday is coming up towards the end of March. She did say sobriety would be best not using and selling drugs. She said she would add that one to the 10 stops. I think Mr. Fuller would be all right co-signing on that one. I think I could be in error. But I mean, hey, lots of reasons, lots of reasons to encourage sobriety but I hope victim of white supremacy Brittany Griner hope she's able to get back to this part of the world safely uh, speaking of safety it's been such a treacherous uh, traumatic uh, <laughs> period of time uh, for about two years now uh, I've been saying you know when you're out in public uh, be alert of your surroundings things that are happening around you any white people are being hostile and rowdy exit this is not the time for confrontations with strangers I've been saying that be thinking that this person could be armed Gus T just this week literally I think like three days ago I'm walking streets of Seattle Roosevelt so this is uh, like north of downtown near Green Lake my beloved Green Lake so I'm walking gonna go to Whole Foods sit down this is like morning time like 930 maybe a little before gonna go to Whole Foods sit down at the cafe and begin my morning think about some counter racist constructive activities I hope I'm like a half block from the entrance of the Whole Foods one of the buses goes by it stops I look at the bus right on navigate around it safely continue on my merry way I see what looks like one of the white passengers is about to disembark I couldn't even see her face and so it looks like it's a female she's standing in front of the door as I'm you know the bus and I are passing right so I walk maybe 60 seconds has passed from the bus coming to a stop and all of a sudden white woman sprints around me hops in front of me she says well what are you doing and I look at her and I'm just like, what is going on? She says, oh, you're gaslighting me. Look, I'm sorry that you're not okay. She takes her mask off and I look at her and I'm like, oh, I, I am totally stunned again now. This is like 930 in the morning. Okay, so I've, I've been awake, I think, probably at this point, maybe 40 minutes. Uh, it is still, you know, I'm starting my day. My brain computer is still kind of firing and, and ready. To, I'm not a morning person at all. That's why the cows does not do morning broadcasts. That's not my time of the day. It takes me a little while to kind of be up and. Woo, all right. I'm ready to attack my day. So I'm just what? What is going on? Like, who are you? I don't know you like what? So I'm I'm not even trying to get into any sort of, you know, what's your name? Are you mistaken, ma'am? I think you've got the wrong person. I'm just moving around her like, I don't even know you. I moved to go around her. This white woman suspected predator turns into Dion Sanders. 
metaphor for people who hopefully <laughs> don't watch football and know anything about all that brain damage. Deion Sanders, Hall of Fame cornerback. So really, really good defender. Like, oh, man, you're not going to get past me. And blah, 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 blah. And he can move his feet really well. Great lateral quickness. You're not going to get around me. Blah, blah, blah. I mean, literally, I just, I'm just trying to walk around her on the sidewalk. It's like she bends the knees. I'm absolutely flabbergasted. Like, what is going from a total stranger? I mean, I have not. And I mean, I have no reason to lie. Like, this is not somebody I was trying to hook up with in another lifetime. I have never seen this white woman in my life, much less talk to her, your name. Like, I went over every scenario, yoga classes, anything, vegan restaurant, farmer's market, like anything. I don't even know your name. Like, what are you talking about? Well, you have. I was going to get, can I get my sound effect in? Like, all the niggers look alike. Like, what is going on? Uh, and she's like, you know, I'm, I'm sorry that you're not okay. And after she does her Deion Sanders, like, I, 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 you're not getting around me. I, at this point now, I was like, whoa. I have really got to get away from you because I'm thinking like, whoa, I am in danger. Like, she could think that I'm some nigger that she has like a vendetta against. And she's going to get mad and do whatever. Or someone could see that, oh, my God, the nigger is going to rape this white woman at this point. It's, I've got to get out of here. This is a really dangerous situation. And I was also thinking... You might not even be a stable white woman. You might be on drugs, some sort of mental problem, both. I have no idea. I am not trying to find out. Vacate, vacate, vacate. So at this point, I don't know you. Take off and sprint away from her. At this point, I was able to get away from her and sprint into the Whole Foods, looking over my shoulder the whole time. But I mean, wow, it has been no limit to the number of just dangerous crazy incidents for lack of a better word Uh, I continue to say when you're out in public tell your offspring you're out and about you are not looking for confrontations of any sort with any strangers she never said oh Gus what are you doing like that at least would include me like oh okay maybe I do know you never even said that I don't have white homies here in Seattle or anywhere else. Anywho, be safe when you are out and about cousins. Uh, Next, I did mention uh, man in the the man. That's the way that I've been saying it right there in your face. Mr. Fuller says that the man in the high castle dr welsing talked about that phrase i think that might be in the isis papers we will be done with that book that everyone wanted to read and then no one uh participated or tuned in or even wrote in about except for like two people thankfully we will be all done with the book i had a request i thought i was going to be able to find it easily and then when i failed i was like oh man let's see if we can just get help and i can devote my time and energy to other things I wanted to wrap up the study session saying, man, Philip K. Dick hung out with the Black Panther Party, 1960s, Bay Area, like Huey P. Newton and all them, Bay Area, Black Panthers. He's hanging out with them. He wrote this book, The Man in the High Castle, that's all about racism, white supremacy. 
Uh, I said, man, is it any way someone can invest a little time before Thursday and see if they can find the audio segment where Neely Fuller Jr., he talks about white supremacy racism being a royalist system, but specifically he says that they like to be up high in a skyscraper or a castle. He says castle specifically looking down on black people. That's what they've made this. They've just taken the royalist system, splashing mud on people that they've just made that. That is excellent way to end. I have that in mind as we wrap up Philip K. Dick. If we can find it, great. If we can't, that's even fine because I already have a great audio backup. But if we can find that, maybe we could do both uh, to have that in mind as we wrap up. And then also the segment from this past week he used the term Tojo as a racial slur against a non-white male so-called Asian. I didn't know what that was. So what do you do with words you don't know what they are? What does that mean? Retired firefighter, my Wi-Fi was not behaving correctly. Retired firefighter uh, had my back. Said, oh, yeah, he's one of the generals from uh, the Japanese army. He's declared a war criminal and executed after uh, World War II. Yikes. One of our investors actually wrote in and said the same thing, shared that information. That, yeah, this guy's a war criminal. Emailed me and all that while my Wi-Fi was misbehaving. They have documentaries on General Hideki Tojo. I was able to watch one today. Stunning in so many different ways. Stunning after he was executed. And I think he was actually hanged, lynching this non-white male. They lynched him. They blamed him for Pearl Harbor. It seemed like they almost blamed the entire World War II on this guy. Uh, Tojo, Hideki Tojo. Uh, when they lynched him, they burned his remains, call it cremation, and then they sprinkled his ashes in the Pacific because they refused to allow his remains to be returned to Japan not going to make a martyr out of him. Wow. Dedication. They even went into details about how they scoured the oven where they burned his remains to make sure that not even a kernel of dust of his skeleton remained. Now that puts a completely different take perspective on grain of sand. Mr. Fuller said that one too, right? Just one little tidbit, right, since I might be the only one who actually is long reading The Man in the High Castle, even though I didn't even want to read this book. Uh, let's see. So Dr. Gerald Horn, who has been a guest on The Cows repeatedly, and we read his biography, Paul Robeson in the book club. He wrote the book Race War about the many elements of white supremacy racism regarding World War II. Now, he does mention Tojo in his book repeatedly. Let's hear what Dr. Horn has to say about him really quick and then we'll get to notes, notes and uh, folks who called in. He writes on page 268, reading is more important than watching television. The notion of a German double cross had crossed the minds of Japanese elites as late as 1941. At one high-level meeting in Tokyo weeks before the assault on Hong Kong, the question was posed starkly what we should always keep in mind here is what would happen to relations between Germany and Great Britain, Great Britain and the United States 
all of them whose population belongs to the white race if Japan should enter the war. Why should this be a concern? Because Hitler has said that the Japanese are a second class race and Germany has not declared war against the United States. Japan will take positive action against the United States. In that event, will the American people adopt the same attitude towards us psychologically that they do toward the Germans? Their indignation against the Japanese will be stronger than their hatred of Hitler. And that's not a question. That's a statement. Full stop. This comment was prescient. A man, Hari Yoshimichi, president of the Privy Council, a group of distinguished leaders who advised the emperor often asked questions in the imperial conferences on behalf of the emperor. He was blunt. I fear, therefore, that if Japan begins a war against the United States, Germany and Great Britain and Germany and the United States will come to terms, leaving Japan to herself. That is, we must be prepared for the possibility that hatred of the yellow race might shift the hatred now being directed against Germany to Japan, thus resulting in the German-British wars being turned against Japan. We must give serious consideration to race relations, exercise constant care to avoid being surrounded by the entire Aryan race, which should leave Japan isolated and take steps now to strengthen relations with Germany and Italy. But Japan, too, was enmeshed in contradictions all its own that allowed for no easy exit. The Japanese leader pleaded, don't let hatred of Japan become stronger than hatred of Hitler so that everybody will, in fact, gang up on Japan. Tojo, who was to pay the ultimate price as chief engineer of Japan's racial policies, added, the points are well taken. I intend to take measures to prevent a racial war once war is started. I should like to prevent Germany and Italy from making peace with Great Britain or with the United States. I will stop there, but this is kind of on display in the book and in real life. The problem is always the dark people. Reading more important than watching television. Even when I read that section, I said, man, we should get Dr. Horn on the program to talk about this book, even though this is one of his uh, older books. You could put that in quotes, I reckon. Anywho, book club Thursdays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Last section, the man, the man in the high castle. Thursday. If anyone can find that segment with Mr. Fuller, that would be great. You can email it to untiljustice at gmail.com. Uh, I will, let's see, I'll pick three things and then we'll get to the callers and then I can say the rest of my notes for disperse them as we continue with the broadcast. That first segment with Kim Masters, so apropos her name, Kim Masters, KCRW, they did the interview with uh, Ronaldo Green. He's the director of King Richard, black male victim of white supremacy, Kim Masters, white woman suspected race soldier. That is one of the more like disgusting 
uh, reports that I've heard. And I mean, they're just talking about a movie, right? They're not talking about any real serious news. I kind of have disdain for entertainment on this program. I've said for years, compensatory call in, no entertainment, no area eight sexual intercourse. The disdain in that segment is why I played it. Not to mention that we did just talk about that film, King Richard, with Dr. Martin Kevorkian just days ago. Uh, And that's a film that I enjoyed, nominated for six Academy Awards. We'll see if they win any. Uh, But from the very beginning in the segment, she starts, Mr. Green sits down. Where did this guy come from? Really? You just directed a film, not your first film. You just directed a film with six Academy Awards. And it wasn't that. Wow. Where did you come from? Breaking on the scene. It wasn't that. It was. Who is this guy? Where did you? How did you get this job type of a thing? Like, where did you come from, Kim Masters? That right there, the epitome of affirmative action. What are your credentials? Affirmative action, white woman. Anyway, so they go from uh, where did you come from to what sound clips do they play from the movie? That was another thing that stood out. When we talked about that movie with Dr. Martin Kevorkian, I played a number of different sound clips from the movie because, wow, it's two hours, so it's so much to choose from. Which sound clips does she choose? She picks the segment, Let's See Your Dangerous Face. Now, I mean, I guess it's cool. Maybe them saying the most dangerous thing is a woman who can think. I mean, I guess that's nice. But let's see your dangerous face. Hmm. Black people are dangerous. And then she segues right from that. His dangerous face out playing baseball. Talking about Mr. Green, the director. The niggers are always dangerous. Potential rapists, looters. What other sound clips do they play? Oh, they play the sound clip of Oracine Price and Richard Williams having an argument, being in some conflict. And what are they arguing about? You and your no count having these children and your son from another relationship showing up here in that Nissan truck and all the rest of it and your failed businesses and that's what she, the sound clips that they pick from the movie to show. They don't even include in that segment. Now, how does that scene end? Does that scene end with Oracine Price smacking Richard Williams upside the head with a rolling pin, throwing him out of the house? Don't you stay here throwing all his clothes out, setting him on fire? Is that how it ends? He runs off and gets a white woman? Nope. The scene ends. The two, Mr. Williams. Miss Price having a loving embrace trying to reconcile. That's how the scene ends. System of white supremacy racism doesn't work unless black people are in conflict. And that's what I loved about the movie is you don't have a whole lot of conflict. There really is. They do argue, but I mean, hey, all of this is resolved in the interest We love our offspring. We want the best for them. We know they are going to dominate. Let's get back to the business. The plan code, if you will, of making that happen. All they don't mention your tune date price. They don't mention the white woman social worker coming to disrupt the family. They don't mention Venus and Serena executive produced the film. No, no, no. The whole interview when they're talking about King Richard has got to be focused on. So how much material did you have to edit out of old difficult 
blackmail brute, probably a rapist, Richard Williams. How much did you have to delete? How much did you have to edit out to make it so that audience would want to see him? How much did you have to leave out? Is that what Orsine Price wanted to talk to you about? She didn't want to be a chump. Is that what she was talking about? You leaving out and having to take out all this stuff about that no count, difficult, brutish Richard Williams? Really? Really, Kim Masters? Black male privilege. I love the movie King Richard. Richard Williams isn't perfect, but again, I said that that tendency, normally it only happens with dead black males where we talk about Michael, if they do a movie about Michael Brown Jr., it's like, well, you know he was no angel. You can't just have him being perfect. You know he was out stealing cigarillos and you know stealing graham crackers at five. You know he was no angel saying the air gone. You know he was no he was no he was un, he wasn't perfect. You know he was no angel. That Eric Garner out selling cigarettes. We know they don't do that when they talk about Thomas Jefferson. They don't say he was raping children. You know he was no angel. No 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 no. We focus on the positive. Best self. Best self tacky and trifling all the way Kim Masters Mr. Green I thought did a great job as well even I appreciated him revealing some of the information about hey Venus said I want to make sure this is not some us being in conflict either we were supportive and that comes through huge in the film love the movie if you haven't seen it and I will have my review posted I had some time to work on that today been saying that forever we'll have that posted i even addressed some of what kim masters said uh in my review uh let's see i said three things so nick oh and one more thing i get in even just the comparison breaking bad television show that i like i've heard white people be more positive about walter white's character from breaking bad who poisons children Bombs on old folks' home, peddles narcotics, opioids, and kills people. And he has more. I hear white people speak more glowingly about this fictitious white psychopath than I do about Richard Williams, who has, to my knowledge, never been charged with a crime, just tries to be a concerned parent, tennis coach author i'm so glad we read richard williams black and white the way i see it and that'll be my final word to say in that book one of the things that i appreciated most he did not have one foul cross word to say about his former wife or price in fact it was the opposite he was so complimentary about how helpful she was for the children pointing out his flaws I, those were things we talked about in the book club back in 2014 his book is right almost in my top 10 not quite but I mean wow it is super constructive and I'm so glad that we read it and he talks about his children from another marriage and all the rest of it Kim Masters next three things three things Things. Uh, I will take the Ukraine uh, situation uh, that was from CBC uh, Canadian uh, Broadcasting they spoke with Jesse Agogo a black male victim of white supremacy for years now 13 years we just had our so called anniversary when people say Gusty how you doing write poorly 
not saying that to be cute, although I don't know what's funny or cute about saying right poorly. I'm not doing well. Never. Doesn't matter what's going on. As long as I'm a victim of white supremacy, I am right poorly. When they asked Mr. Agogo, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm all right. He didn't even have to get into the details. I just thought immediately that is not true. There is. I have never been in that sort of situation where I've had to look around uh, my surroundings and say, what do I think I can carry? I'm going to have to walk for 12 hours with the hopes of saving my life and being allowed to cross the border into another country. What do I think I can carry on my back as I go to walk for 12 hours to save my life? I've never been in that sort of environment. However, I know I would not be all right. Not even close. I thought of Katrina so much in that segment. I don't know if it's just because they said refugee or doesn't matter. Same song. No refuge for the Negro. Black, get back. I don't care what you're running from. Bombs, warfare, flood, rogue enforcement officials, all of the above. Black, get back. World nigger law. Now, he said he was doing all right. And then when they got into more of the details after he had to walk for 12 hours and people are having to put their stuff down on the road because it's too heavy and then you get there and there's thousands of people piled up at the gate and then you get there and, eh, I don't know, women and children first he's like, oh okay well, let's get some of the, the females and you get some of the black eh, eh, eh. they said he got on the train and the police dragged him off the train he said dang have I heard that before wasn't that Ida B. Wells that was like more than a hundred years ago wasn't that Mahatma Gandhi? That's close to 100 years ago, too. It's 2022, and you still have black people being pulled off of trains? Trains that they said weren't even full. World nigger law. No place to run at all. You get through all of this. We're going to down the track and all the rest of you get through all of this. You finally get through. He says, I'm still traumatized. He said, I can't sleep three different times at least. Now, I pay attention to things like that. Normally, you know, if someone asks how you doing, oh, you know, I'm having a little bit of trouble sleep. He said, I can't sleep. And, you know, we're getting through and I saw this female that she fainted and, you know, we've been traumatized and, I, you know, just having trouble sleeping and dealing with things as best we can. And I can't sleep. I mean, man, he even went on hallucinations. All right. How are you having hallucinations? This this isn't a criticism. I'm just saying this is very common. We're in the system of white supremacy. We've been trained to just to lie. We are never or even if this wasn't the case, like way two months ago, he wasn't all right. I wasn't all right. I'm not all right today and I'm not anywhere close to Ukraine. If you're subject to the system of white supremacy, racism, this could be you in the next five seconds. See, Katrina, that's what I said. This could be you. Wasn't that them? We read that, too, in the book club, trying to get across the crescent 
City Bridge, the exact same thing happened. Black, get back. But we're trying to get out of here. It's not safe. It's like, get black, get back. urgency about solving this problem because you just keep saying the same thing over and over and over with regards to black people that I even said South Asians as well in that segment I did catch that those tend to be the darker non-white people but it's still black get back the darker you are come back for you later maybe Uh, let's see. Even the faintest. It was. Oh my God! It was. I was. They had a segment on democracy now, right? Because this was talked about. BBC talked about this. The flagrant racism. Time Magazine had a huge report on this that I was going to play, and I, I try to listen to different news reports. Racism, white supremacy is global. Try to check out Canadian broadcasting. Be in Toronto. We have other folks who are north of the U.S. border. So, and I was. It was appalling. Not that I haven't heard this before, but I mean. Let's see. Say one more. I'll pause there. I'll share the rest of it as we proceed. Uh, no metaphors, please. Uh, they when they talked about the enforcement officer in Florida next to Palm Beach, that's pretty close to retired firefighter who had choked out this uh, black teen who said should have been hired. They said he should have been hired because he had a checkered past. That is in Mr. Fuller's word guide. Checkered past. You put that right up there. Things took a dark turn. Many reasons to avoid those metaphors in the system of racism, white supremacy, or at minimum to be mindful about what we are saying uh, for this broadcast. If we could not use metaphors, I will give reminders about those. If you could speak uh, for about five minutes, that would be great. Uh, make sure everyone has at least one opportunity to speak. That would be great. Uh, if you have additional thoughts or questions, uh, once everyone has had their one chance, then you can come back and share your additional thoughts and or observations. Uh, the number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Let's see. We'll... Uh, uh-uh. First, if you you know you're in a noisy environment, lots of background noise. If you could get to a quieter area, that would be super appreciated. Just that way folks will not have a lot of unnecessary background noise to brawl with. That would be grand. Let's see. Uh, Folks with a hand up. uh, Proceed. Let's see. Like folks are spectating uh, for the time being, uh, not for spectators, and definitely we're not doing the. I've noticed for workplace racism, and even this broadcast, people waiting until like the last ten minutes of the program. I am not encouraging that uh, because what happens is then we end up going overtime. There's no reason to have gaps in the program and space where people are not chatting and then wait. That's been a nagging pattern over the 13 years. We will wait like they, you know, need to uh, more time to get their thoughts together. Do not wait until we 
you think we have five minutes to go or something like that and then decide, yes, I'm ready to talk. My thoughts have come to me and now I'm ready to chat. We're not taking hands uh, when it's <laughs> 10 minutes left in the broadcast and the people are doing the spectating and what have you. We can wrap things up early. So you have commentary to share things that stood out from the news. I certainly cannot imagine you sat there and listened to those news uh, segments for 60 minutes or what have you and had no observations, comments, questions, sparked no thoughts in your brain computer at all. Wow. Let's see. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, everyone. Aforementioned retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, uh, just wanted to say that uh, pretty soon another uh, session of uh, young black males, the mentoring program, the DCF mentoring program will get started again at the uh, latter part of uh, this month. Uh, have there been any suggestions of a uh future book in the club that's a question <laughs> absolutely not uh gusty has kicked himself for the last however long you've been reading this book month or so um with regards to soliciting listener input for this book and then they bailed like immediately like from the very first book people were like ah, i don't want to read this after they picked so Gus T is not soliciting listener input for the book club like probably for years. Uh, I will be picking the book myself. Uh, part of well, I have many reasons. Some of those I'll talk about on Thursday. But I think part of the reason reading more important than watching television, I found sometimes people are not sufficiently motivated to read the books on their own. So they'll say, hey, maybe they'll read it on the book club. And then even when we do, they still don't participate and tune in. So if folks are really excited, read it, do a report on it, share, let us know. And then maybe we'll be sparked and inspired to read it. But no, I have not. And it is going to be a cold day in Jamaica when Gus T comes out soliciting listener input for the book club. I, I I was asking that question because I had a suggestion uh, that may draw some interest. I don't know. It's actually a uh, the book is a, a around a a real life personality that existed. It's, it's real quiet. <laughs> Uh, oh, I didn't know if you were done or, or if that was it. Oh, uh, Minister, Minister Elijah Muhammad. Uh, I, there are several books on him. Uh, so I'm, I'm not making a choice of the books on him, but I have two of them that I've read. And that's something I like to do is to read about uh, some personalities who made counter-racist efforts uh, and where whereas us as the readers can uh, pick out 
the things that can be uh, preserved that uh, apparently was uh, a plus when it comes to codification and and talk about the instances that apparently does not work. Just a thought. Just a thought. I have two books on him. Uh, but uh, anyway, that, that's all I have to say. Thank you. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Very logical. Uh, I think that is something. I think we've had a pretty good uh, pattern of that over the years that we've had the book club in terms of reading about real life people. One of his students, uh, Minister uh, Malcolm X, uh, amongst a few others uh, that we have read a lot of biographies uh, in the book club over the years uh, and trying to pick out things that we can use, uh, lessons learned, or even, you know, some of the things that did not work. So we can, those are also valuable lessons as well. So very logical. Uh, sure, folks can learn quite a bit. Uh, if anybody picks up any of those biographies and or any of the books that uh, Mr. Muhammad wrote himself, feel free to share the constructive contents of what you read let's see much obliged uh, retired firefighter in Florida uh, let's see folks are spectating I reckon uh, let's see if folks are spectating and we can wrap up a little bit early I'm fine with that too make sure I get out some of the notes that I was not able to get in one since we just spoke with retired firefighter in Florida they had a major fire uh, in Brooklyn New York this week uh, now I'm not I'm I don't have any experience the fire department so that's not really something that I like track and and follow or what have you but just from my casual checking of news reports and what have you I think that's at least three major fires that they've had uh, just this year like 2022 January 1 that's what I'm talking about uh, they had the one this week in Brooklyn that I believe I think they said was a space heater. Uh, of some sort, which that's I'm retired fire can speak to that way better than myself. Uh, they had an incident in Philadelphia. I think that one was might have been last month or maybe even a later part of January. Uh, and then they had the one in the Bronx. I think that one they had like 19 fatalities. It's a lot of children. They said uh, that some of the fire codes in the building uh, that were not being observed. Uh, some of the fire doors and things where the door was supposed to close so the fire wouldn't be allowed to just you know roam over the whole building and have smoke and all that stuff didn't work. So the doors were open and all the rest of it. But man, um, just for this year alone, I would strongly encourage uh, anybody out there. If you live by yourself uh, and or if you live with others, make sure you have a code about fire safety in your residence. Uh, in fact, I remember we got retired firefighter here. When we went down to Florida to do the uh, yoga retreat. We had uh, candles lit, you know, called new age and relaxing. Not that I'm besmirching candles, just saying and our candles. Say, hey, 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 move those candles away from the curtain. Can't, you know, have us burned up here uh, at the yoga retreat. Fire safety, and in fact, had said, told us. I already did our, you know, fire check. Went around, make sure there weren't any hazards, anything while we're hanging out, because I think we were there for like a week, seven days, or something. Uh, said, I already went around to do a check. Do that if you live in a high-rise building, apartment, or whatever it is. Do a check. Check in with other tenants. Are there concerns or what have you? 
make reports, talk if you have offspring or what have you, have a code. This is what to do if something should happen, if the fire alarm goes off, bang, they have fire drills. That's what they call them at school. You can have fire drills at your residence and you should so that it's not oh my god and I mean these never happen at opportune times so it's probably going to be you know three o'clock in the morning that type of a thing uh, so hey plan for that make this as easy as possible if it happens that's what we obtain this is some sort of fire what have you emergency bam this is where we're going to meet at uh, these are the absolutes whatever documents or what have you if you just want the children to just focus on themselves and getting them out bam they already know which direction to do and maybe have two exits or what have you you have your documents already where they need to be but I mean they have on top of everything else that's at least three major fires I think for the one this week in Brooklyn they had the pictures of uh, firefighters having to go up on the ladder and snatch like a small and when I say like a small child like under three take them through a window from a parent to get them. I mean, who wants to go through all of that? I'm not saying anybody, well, they didn't do anything in career. I'm just saying like, man, if you can avoid that to the best of your ability, man, meet with the family, talk, make sure you check your smoke alarms. They were talking about that as well. Uh, do not just have them doing that chirping and what have you from where the battery is dead and you know, haven't replaced it or whatever the case may be. Uh, be as codified and as safe as you can because it seems like there have been a lot of these incidents just you know within this calendar year 2022 uh, this is certainly not my area of expertise uh, retired firefighter anything you have to add on this subject have you been paying attention did you, did you see the fire that happened in Brooklyn this week and or anything you want to add on that subject uh, no I didn't but uh, I've, I've been to a wide variety of uh, fires of all different types and and uh some of them have had uh death uh including children uh but uh everything that you said is uh basically basically uh, essential uh that you should uh one should practice with others uh especially uh the buildings, I think your type of buildings, I think you're talking about in, in a place like New York, uh, the fire travels very, very fast uh, from uh, apartment to apartment, uh, you know, because these, like I've mentioned before, these type of living facilities uh, basically uh, mainly uh, money makers not really meant for uh, uh, people to reside in uh, and you're just packing people on top of each other next to one another and a fire once it gets into one apartment uh, it, it uh, the heat rises up and it goes through a tunnel-like corridor from the ceiling from your ceiling to the ceiling next door, then it goes down and brews up, you know, into that apartment, rises back up and go down to the next apartment. And before you know it, it'd be a whole floor fully involved, you know, that sort of thing. And, uh, and you know, you can't, you can't really have an understanding of a fire by watching 
the, the television programs about the fire department because they, 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 they're not really realistic. Uh, I, I use the example all the time. If you really want to know what a real fire uh, is like, close your eyes, put your hands over your eyes, get someone else to put their hands over your hands, and then turn music up in your house so loud that your neighbors, two, three homes, houses down can hear it. That is some, for some reason, it's, it's always loud in the environment also. Uh, and uh, you can't really mimic it uh, heat-wise because your stove only goes 500 degrees, whereas the average fire is, is well over 1,000 degrees where things that you have on the firefighters as a firefighter have on is melting, you know? So, uh, and, and, and the melting is from the radiated heat. It's not from the, the direct fire. It's from the radiated heat, uh, that, uh, you won't even get close to going in to try to save your children because of the radiated heat. You won't even get close to the house, you know, but, uh, so to avoid that as much as possible, uh, always be cognizant of uh, of the dangers, you know, and uh, like you said, the the, uh, the different things that you mentioned before. To always make sure that uh, you're on point with those safety concerns, and uh, that's all I can think of right now. Much obliged, retired firefighter in Florida. Uh, I know I can speak for myself as well, even though Gus T, as a vegan chef, I do not have a reputation uh, for burning food and or kitchen fires. However, uh, as someone who does deep fry like an egg roll every now and then, uh, even kitchen safety, if you have uh, you allow your children to cook, which is great. But I mean, that's another one. Those uh, stove fires and hot grease fires and that sort of thing. Have a fire extinguisher. Check it from time to time to make sure uh, that it works uh, and even have a code about that because that can be a popular spot for uh, fires and that sort of thing to break out since you've got the the stove there and everything. So have a code. Talk to your other occupants. If you live with other people, if you have children, all that, have a meeting so that you can be as safe as you can. But that was uh, big. This week has been lots of black people in those incidents, Philadelphia, Bronx, Brooklyn, uh, victims of these different residential fires. Let's see. Number again. Oh, one, one more. Two, two, two things, Gus, and I'll shut up. Uh, the, the two most dangerous places is the bedroom and the area that's called the living room. Mr. Fuller gave, gives it another name, the area that's called the living room. Uh, those are the two most uh, uh, places where fires erupt quickly. Uh, from my experiences of of almost thirty years of doing that, it's in the in the uh, bedroom and uh, living room because that's where a lot of uh, uh, things that can easily catch on fire exist. That is in those places. That's it. Thank you. Always say that sobriety would be best. Uh... That does include cigarette smoking, which unfortunately contributes to some of these hazards as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. 
Let's see. Much obliged. Our PSA for the cows doing our part. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up if you have commentary. Proceed. Can I be heard? Hello. Oops. Uh, heard both of you. Let's get Irie first. Oh, uh, I guess with Irie, there was a caller investor she wrote in yesterday uh, about uh, maybe writing a letter to your representative uh, Congress person uh, about your uh, aid from being in the armed services. I don't know if you heard it or not, but she did write in a message and said, write that letter, get that money, see if you can get it. Oh, to get the the bonus? Uh, it was or, about or what? the funding for your education. Uh, since they're supposed to have poems where they do some sort of loan payback or whatever. She said that I'm summarizing from memory, but basically she said she had a relative where they did the same thing where they had earned where the military was supposed to pay for their schooling or what have you. And they didn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she said that this Mm -hmm. person, just like you got out of the service and was over and all that. And they wrote letter or a letter. I think she said to their uh, Congress person and they did an investigation and they ended up getting all of that money paid back. uh, Plus the difference uh, from what whatever was left over from what they should have got. So, at minimum, write a letter. Oh, oh well, I, I'm good at writing letters. Thank you um, to the person that wrote in for that. I I don't know why I didn't think to do that. Um, yeah, well, I'm still learning. That's why. Um, but that's very um, constructive. I appreciate it. I wanted to say, um, agree with you that just like Hurricane Katrina and Ida, uh, we see white people um, abandoning non-white people who are considered black uh, wherever they stand during times of crisis um, and being direct about doing so. You know, um, I was telling the story about um, a friend of mine that was in the army, how his command practiced racism on him when he was in Iraq and didn't tell him Katrina was happening and told him, you should go on leave right now. And then, you know, he goes over there. I probably told the story before, but he, they sent him back to New Orleans a couple of days before Katrina. And then he found out. And then he ended up at the convention center with his family. And, you know, he was experiencing similar warlike uh, post-traumatic stress from Katrina as well as what he had experienced in Iraq. So, um, oh, Lord, I just, I'm wondering if the solution, I don't know, I I don't know, especially for African people because they move around a little bit more than African so-called American people, but it, it seems like it's not in... Africans' best interest to be moving around right now like that. But then somebody is probably going to say, well, we shouldn't be restricting people just because. But, I mean, in a goal situation, we see what the response is. So I, I just, it just seems like it would just be better to just hunker down in your, you know, 50-mile radius right now. It, we still have so-called coronavirus, that's still an issue, you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, even though they've relaxed mandates and we've had these outdoor festivals that, you know, I mean, I don't know. 
I, I I could be speaking as a person that has become reclusive more than I should have, but I I would say too, the system of racism, white supremacy, has me very selective about where I go. Um, uh, just like the firefighter, we have a class coming up soon this month that's to teach emergency planning and urban survival to 15 to 19 year olds and recent graduates that includes, you know, having emergency plans, like I said, with, uh, for weather and, you know, in your home. And, uh, my friend is a vegan chef and she's going to be, um, uh, presenting things to have in, in an emergency as far as food, which you should have in, in like a, a goal situation. Mm-hmm. And the kids will be getting, uh, First aid kits and a, a first, not a first aid, and a emergency food kit, as well as something that will enable them to grow food. Um, you know, just get them in the hopefully curiosity of it, so they're not just consuming their producing. And I thought that was outstanding. So you know, shout out to her, uh, Gus. I want to uh, give you a high five, literally, for challenging the lady with the the double entry about uh, Lucky. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to put the sound effect. I can't stand that book. I can't stand that book. I can't stand it. Ugh, that woman. Ugh, I shouldn't be so emotional about it, but I guess it's right. You know, like I think. I think that was absolutely right. Yeah, Annie up some money, put some money on his stuff, um, renounce everything you said, <laughs> you know, and link to this, to your thing. And, you know, shoot, she should get in touch with Alice Seabold and tell her to put some money on, you know, on it as well. But, you know, she's read all this lady's books. Like, I'm a little bit like, I don't know. She, I don't think she was, I don't know. She said something that made me think that she she wasn't over, over, let me slow down. She said something that made me think that Lucky is still her favorite book, honestly. She was, because she said she didn't like another book least of all, and it wasn't Lucky and it wasn't Lovely Bones. I can't remember. But I was like, hmm, I wonder if she really didn't like Lucky anymore, if she would have said something like, well, XYZ book used to be my least favorite. Now Lucky is or something like that. But, I mean, I don't know. I just don't think she's over it. And I think she might be a stan. That's probably a metaphor. Sorry. She probably still likes Alice Seabold. Um. But she, she, I don't know, it, they have a way of really swaying you and confusing you because it sounded like she could have been sincere, you know, at times. Maybe she was, I, I, and especially when she talked about her own situation. But I don't know. That that was that was something to listen to. Like, you read it twice? Who wants to read that crap? Okay, whatever. I guess people read other stuff that's worse twice, and they're probably white. Anyhow, moving on. Um I don't know. Oh, uh, last thing. Yes, this is it. Um it's still not safe to cross the street, ladies and gentlemen. If you didn't know, I've been challenged at least three times by cars in parking lots um, where clearly 
I am a pedestrian. Clearly, I have the right of way and I am already in the crossing zone. And clearly, I am not uh, made to be hit by something made out of plastic and metal and survive it without injury. And I have been, my path has been encroached by people, white people in vehicles. Um, and yeah, just wanted to say that. Um, maybe because it's getting warmer, people are getting more bold or something, but there's that. Please be careful. I'll mute my line. Hotep, everyone. Peace and uh, blessings. Much obliged, Irie, for we nab our call caller uh, in Ohio. We had that report about the school so-called desegregation in Lima, Ohio. Uh, that's where they put the black people at. Um, Jody Cook is the white woman who uh, was a guest on the program from the UK, no less. I think that's so important because they're not just reading about raping niggers in the U.S. Same thing I said before, world nigger law. So niggers, raping niggers. Everybody in the world wants to read about the raping Negro. So uh, Jody Cook in the UK, who wrote two reviews. She didn't even just read the book twice. She wrote two reviews. I had to look like a couple times to make sure I'm seeing this correctly. Like you wrote two reviews about the same book. Hmm. She has already posted an update. Uh, on her site that includes links to all of the cows book club segments on lucky a link to the program that she did with us uh, this past week uh, a luck to Mr. Broadwater's GoFundMe page uh, and links to other articles and reports about the case and she said that within that page she said that she's going to write a third review about this case and a listener wrote me he said that he loves having white guests on the program all right on with that uh, he said that uh, Jody Cook he said she was so excruciating to listen to because he said the same thing like you wrote two reviews on this book and you said this was one of the best books you ever read don't sit here and you know Alice Ebold this and all that and that no count white woman tricked us like whoa 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 whoa. I've read this book more than once I wrote multiple reviews I said it's the best one of the best books ever and I read all of Alice Ebold books said she's one of my favorite authors and this nonsense that I believe like are you serious so whenever she writes the review we can all check it out and see how honest she is like does she take some personal accountability for her personal white supremacy racism and her personal failures in being a critical reader like you can hear that probably like so you thought all of this was believable mm-hmm. we shall see what she writes uh for the final review and we'll look you can see right the people who contribute on GoFundMe so we can look and see when she makes her GoFundMe contribution because it shouldn't be like a nickel or something like that uh, let's see caller in Ohio yes sir thank you for your patience not a problem uh, I'd like to start off with the uh, conversation they had with the uh, African fellow over there in the Ukraine who was the student 
where uh, he spoke about he hadn't experienced racism in uh, at, with his time over there in Eastern Europe, and particularly the concept called the U-Train. Um, I, I haven't been to Eastern Europe, but uh, I know at least in Ohio area, right, uh, if you go to Cleveland, on the west side of Cleveland, around the Parma, Seven Hills area, um, they have a, you know, population of specifically Eastern Europeans. And it's always been well known that that's going to be a place where you will face outright in your face racism from those folks. The few times I've actually been over in that specific area, I kept it very short. I and mean, you can you can sense it in the air if you go into a restaurant or a store that these people are serious about their, their practice of racism and white supremacy. Um, I also would say I'd keep an eye on um, yeah, they're, they're blocking those students from leaving and the African folks from going. But also, I don't hear people really speaking much about that whole Nazi uh, division that's part of, like, the Ukraine military. You get what I'm saying? Like, how do you know that they're not blocking those Africans off so they can get picked off by uh, some of those Nazis running around in the military? Those are just the overt ones that, of that unit. There's probably others who now given that uh, you're seeing white and white crime and they're angry about it, they take it out on the uh, black folks. So I definitely keep an eye on how many of those students all of a sudden disappear uh, while trying to get to another border because we had to walk 12 hours. That's, I, I can't imagine walking 12 hours across any area in general, and definitely in an area where you have racism, white supremacy being practiced. So I won't be surprised if you find out that uh, quite a few of those students got uh, hunted down and were used as target practice. Uh, the Ohio side with uh, desegregation, really, like, I, I came up in school through the 90s, and like I said, I've gone, I went to a majority white school, and... I never saw any form of desegregation outside of maybe the small population of black folks that went I went to school with, but amongst the administration, it was just all white. I think I had maybe uh, one black teacher, eighth grade science class. He was a black male, and uh, he was a good teacher, but he also played basketball, so we, you know, we relate on that that part, but. Outside of that, I can only think of maybe four black teachers in the whole school system that I went to. And after they retired, really, even when I go to the stuff I've gone to for um, family members that went to school at, in the same school system, I still don't see that many black teachers there. Like, if it wasn't a black teacher that got hired back in the 90s, I haven't seen too many who are uh, new there. The Akron situation with the guy from Kent who punched the woman in the face. Uh, they said it's a, a diverse community. From my experience in Akron, that area, whenever I've gone through it, I really don't see diversity. I guess you'd have to ask the question, what are you considering diversity to mean? Because to me, that's a white area. Um, it's pretty much like the areas that I know where black folks stay out in Akron, they're pretty much segregated there. Akron's a little bit different than Cleveland, but Akron's more of like a, I'd say more like a hillbilly type city. 
I'm not going to say it's like completely um, country, but you'll see a lot more trailer parks and a lot of just stuff that you see country white folks doing. Um, the lady with that you interviewed, it was very interesting to hear how she was trying to, in a way, sound like she had repented for her views of it, but in a way, she sounded as if she was still trying to defend her views on that book. With that, I'll meet my line. Much obliged, our caller in Ohio. For some reason, I was thinking the Lima situation, like, yeah, that's Ohio. That's right where you are. Totally blank. Like, oh, yeah. Akron's in Ohio, too. Old uh, Andrew Walsh going around punching uh, black females and nigger and all the rest of it. That clip right there. They said exactly what I've been saying for two years. He come, nigger this ant under the info. What have I said? Longer than two years. One of the worst combinations in the known universe. Whites. Alcohol. She said you could clearly see that Andrew Walsh had been drinking and he's carrying a firearm. Haven't I said that for two years? Like you're out strolling, doing whatever. And then, whoa, I was not ready. I did not leave my house with the intention of getting into a duel with Adam Walsh or killing Adam Walsh. Let me get out of here as soon as possible. Lots hey, of them. Um, I, I, what I want to add on to that, sorry about that, man, is like I went to, I went to, when I did attend college, I went to Kent State and then I transferred to Akron. So I, I was at Kent State for longer than I was at Akron. But Kent State, like the city is Kent and then the university is Kent State down there. Kent State's well known for being racist. Like that campus, when I was going there in the early 2000s, there was always some type of racial issue happening on the campus and off the campus. So I'm not surprised to hear of that white male who lives in Kent doing that type of behavior. That's very common down there in Kent. And they quite frequently have, like, they had like a bar district and they rebuilt everything. But uh, an acquaintance of mine, they used to go down there all the time. And they'd invite me. Now, my acquaintance is uh, biracial. He's had a white parent. But after I went to school down there, I, I tell him straight up, like, no, I'm not going down there to Kent to party. That's, that's a no-no. So I'm not surprised to hear those antics coming from that fella. Context of white supremacy. Mm. Stunning. Stunning. Much obliged, our caller in Ohio. Mm, mm, mm. Be alert, folks, especially in the so-called diverse areas. They practice white supremacy racism there, especially when the alcohol is a-flowing. Uh, let's see. Number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564 Nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks, we must have a hand up. Commentary. They need to make sure they get in before we wrap things up. Have you heard? Our caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to guest folks, the listeners, and callers. 
uh, I was also thinking about that um, the uh, at the racism practiced up in the area in uh, Ohio and the the language right. Um, they I think I don't know was that where they used the term. It looks like it was posse or something like that. I think they were describing the victim. Maybe she was with some other females, and she said someone in her posse um, was trying to, I guess, take some footage. And, you know, with that that kind of term, it makes it sound uh, similar to being called a gang or something. Uh, I thought about that, and where they was they used the word hate crime, but like how the another group of uh, non-white people uh, where they were using anti-Asian, they were uh, specific. And this is a black female, a black person being attacked and assaulted. I don't know if they use the term anti-black. Well, I didn't really hear, but they don't, they don't tend to use that when black people are um, being victimized and mistreated. And when they want to invoke the term hate crime, uh, and as far as the, the segment where they were talking about the segregation, um, I, I think it was a, a victim of racism that was speaking. So, you know, VGQ. But I have heard when other victims, they'll say, well, you know, you know these, these white kids, they haven't been around black people. They only seen them on TV or something like that. Um, they don't know that this is harmful to us. I think that's what was said. They didn't know that the the word nigga is 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 causing harm, but I'm like, you know, uh, my view is they're calling you that, you know, they children, and from what I've seen come to my workplace, white kids, they are being observant. They, you know, when it comes to that racism, they learn early, uh, so they do they do know and have been taught to uh, mistreat black children and black people in general. Um, and there was a, uh, the segment about, I think the, the victim of racism that was trying to, um, get from the, 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 uh, disastrous, dangerous area in the Ukraine. Um, man, he, yeah, he, he did sound very traumatized. And I noticed that when they were using the term international students, I didn't even really hear them mention anything about any students being white. It seemed like he named some non-white people. Um, I think what South Asian and African things like that. Uh, and I had one last thing. There was a segment um, about some people from a organization called Ten Can, and it's about. I guess helping people with PTSD. So on a segment, it was a lot of white people, uh, and they were talking about doing things to help people, I guess, with their uh, PTSD and their condition. And what they were shown on the um, report doing was going to hunt alligators and do some killing. Right. So I didn't, I don't think that even made sense to me. So, uh, other than that, that's that's all I have to report on. Thanks for allowing me to share. Now, see, there, much obliged to our caller in Florida, North Florida. We had the report 
they were talking up in New England, they had the black people. They opened the yoga studio wellness. They're talking about mental health. Now, what did they say? Let's get together, do some breathing. Have some sort of communal spirit. Eat some good food. Talk about some relaxation, some meditation. All right. Right on. Let's do that. Right on. Love it. And he says they go to the same thing. What are we going to do? Oh, let's go out and find some crocodiles and kill them. I guess that could be about relaxation. I guess some people don't do go out and hunt. Right. Or fish, that's kind of maybe same type of thing. And they see that some sort of relaxation. I submit system of white supremacy, racism. We should be able to do some form of relaxation that does not involve destruction. Killing other beings. Killing other people. Harming ourselves. Like it should be something where, okay, we can have a chuckle or two, feel good. And nothing has been harmed. Is that so hard? Can't it's got to be football or killing crocodiles? That's what it's got to be. Killing black people. That's the only way we can have fun. Reading, uh, what is it? Murder mysteries. That's the only way we can we can have a good time. Do a little relaxation. Total disgrace. Um, the segment in Akron. Now I heard the same thing. The reporter did use the term posse. That was one I would need to see the transcript I wasn't sure because she was saying that the footage was taken by I wasn't sure if she was saying it was by like the victim's posse if that's how she was saying it where absolutely I mean now come on when do you I mean I, we talked about that word before speaking of Akron they call even LeBron James I don't even hear him out being a, a counter racist scientist even LeBron James is coming out and say whoa 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 what are you doing saying that I'm a member of a posse, Phil Jackson? That sounds like something a racist would say. There was a big to-do about this. LeBron James checking Phil Jackson about saying that he and his posse were out doing things up to no good. And he said the same thing. Like, what do you mean? That's like saying that we're a gang of thugs. Like the whole connotation of the word posse. Lawless white desperados that's jesse james and company so she did say posse i wasn't sure if that was like because sometimes they'll have like uh, a group or what have you and they'll have posse in the name so i have to double check the clip to see how it was used but she for sure did say posse there it would just depend on that was that an act of racism or you know was this like the group's name or you know whatever i have to look at the transcript on that one for a few extra uh details uh and yes i've not heard about uh international students being classified as white in the Ukraine like I haven't seen video like I'm sure it's got do they have any American students who that were over there studying abroad doing anything British students Canadian students like is that a possibility it's only Negroes from the continent and South Asians that go to Ukraine to do any studying like really or are they doing the same thing same thing that they did for Hurricane Katrina where they come in specifically and ferret out the few white people and leave the niggers behind. Is that what they're doing? They get out the few white international students. Anywho, uh, any other folks have commented that they wanted to uh, make sure that they get in before we wrap things up. It had to be something you get in like 30 seconds.
Everybody satisfied? Got didn't miss anybody. Grant, I will assume everyone is satisfied for the week. Uh we should be here uh midweek check uh social media black talk radio network will have the updates program time and all that again you can drop an email until justice at gmail.com uh, if you have difficulty accessing the archives or any other problems uh, accessing the cows content uh, we are listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive visit the blog racism hyphen notes dot blogspot dot com PayPal button is in the top right corner directly beneath the PayPal button. Uh, you should see links for PayPal cash app and Venmo the cash app address cash dot app forward slash dollar sign the cows. Huge thanks to all the folks who have invested for 13 plus years. Hopefully we've offered some constructive tidbits to help victims of white supremacy better understand what white supremacy racism is and how it works, what it means to be classified as white and things that non-white people can and should be doing to get this problem solved immediately. That said, sobriety would be best. You heard the report about increasing numbers of black people dying from drug overdoses. Dr. Welsing talked about that. In addition to being sober, if you're out and about, you heard what happened in Akron, Ohio. Not only was this a race soldier under the influence, violent, he was armed. You're out and about. If you didn't leave your residence, prepare to kill and or die on the spot. Exit anything like that where it looks like, uh oh, Rowdy white man, he's staggering and cursing and nigger that run. Let's get out of here immediately. Already know how this could go. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, you're buckled, you're not on the cell phone, doing the small things that we can to avoid contact with race soldiers, badge or no. And we need all of our attention. Folks like Andrew Walsh could be out and about. Gotta be mindful. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm -hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. <laughs>